I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the coffee to my cherry pie. Finally, Khalil acknowledges me as damn fine on the podcast. Me as the unplugged professor. I'm going to say it before I forget it. Lukewarm, sitting on the counter, garbage coffee, <laughs> too much creamer, too much sugar, saccharinely Excuse sweet. Me, I don't taint my coffee. I have it black as midnight on a moonless night. More every like time. white on a sunny beach. <laughs> Just milk with Sand. a drop. <laughs> Sandy. Sandy coffee. Like, like straight up drinking the grains. Today's grainy episode of the Twin Peaks Logcast is covering parts 17 and 18 of The Return. Part 17, known as The Past Dictates the Future. And part 18, known as What Is Your Name? We've made it, Khalil. We made it to the end of The Return. So how do you feel now that we are approaching this final point of the return for us like this this we we have we have more than approaching we are on that sandy beach right now yes i feel a lot of emotions anyone who's been following this up to this point knows that i have experienced negative feelings toward the return you don't say when i first watched it years ago i was disappointed by it but i thought that maybe when i go back to it those feelings might change Mm -hmm. but after hours of discussing it with people between my first and second viewing and now hours of on the podcast discussing this with you professor and off pod I dislike the return more than I ever have. And Mm -hmm. it's something I have to wrestle with knowing that that does not speak for the majority of Twin Peaks fans. I'm kind of in an outlier position. And I hope that for those who do share similar disagreements with the return, who also are not huge fans of it, I hope that I've been able to speak justice to maybe some of your opinions that we share. And for those who love the return, I hope I've been able to provide another viewpoint, another perspective that even though we may not agree, I hope at least I've opened some eyes to why someone might not like the return. Mm. Now that I am done, I am simultaneously glad it's over but then also having to deal with the fact that I'm glad it's over. Uh, it, it's a weird contradictory feeling. I will say first and foremost, part 17 is my least favorite part in all of Twin Peaks. Mm. It's my least favorite episode, part, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Part 18, I don't really have a lot of beef with. I think part 18, as a vegetarian, I don't have a lot of beef with it especially, <laughs> but I feel like part 18, the problems I would maybe go against with it aren't the fault of the episode itself. It's more that the episode is so disjointed from everything that maybe as an ending, it doesn't feel quote unquote set up, but Mm -hmm. that's not the fault of the episode's pacing or the episode's execution. It's more that it is this outlier thing that doesn't connect. Part 17 Mm -hmm. is where most of my upset feelings would come from. That's where I think it's the culmination of Mr. C's plot line, Dale Cooper's to a large extent, yes. Freddy's. A lot of things that I can have issue with are, are really in 17, not 18. I would also say part 18 is the turning point where, although I'm okay with the episode, I would say that it cements for me the status that the return might be the most confusing thing David Lynch has ever made. Uh, maybe blatantly so, maybe purposefully so, to the extent that it feels to me like a puzzle box without a solution mm-hmm. or a maze with no exit. Mm. I would say that, you know, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive are confusing, but you can still summarize them. If I say Lost Highway, 
A man kills his wife and experiences the aftermath of that. Yes. If I say that Mulholland Drive, a young actress, goes to Hollywood and experiences a nightmare, and even Inland Empire, if I say a woman in trouble uh, starts to lose her sense of reality, Mm -hmm. I could summarize it that way. Mm -hmm. And the original Twin Peaks, even though it's a long show, I can give basic ideas of what the premise of Twin Peaks is about. With the return, I still struggle to this day, to this very moment, to understand what main characters were doing. What was Mm. the goal of Dale Cooper? What was the goal of Mr. C? What was the goal of key agents like Philip Jeffries or Major Briggs of the Firemen? And that that lack of understanding, lack of context, makes it the thing that I look at with the most bewildering uh, feelings in face of it. The most I can say about Twin Peaks The Return, if I had to sum up into a short note, would be... The people who live inside of the dream have the potential doom of an all-consuming nightmare lurking in the background. I say this also, looking into both Part 17 and Part 18, Part 17 is one of those cases where I acknowledge how much I do adore The Return, where the cinematography, as well as the style of the show itself. I can see weaknesses in the script. I can see and acknowledge the weaknesses that come forward to the point that I can look you straight in the eyes and say, yeah, no, these are cases in which I do believe deserve scrutiny. But at the same time, even for how many times it kicks me out of the experience, it puts me into a new box that I kind of look into it and I'm surprised how much I do enjoy it. A glass box? A glass box. Yeah, no. Genuinely transparent, genuinely acknowledging my surroundings and being knocked out of it, but also kind of looking into the marvel of what it is and... As opposed to the DC of what it is. (laughs) Exactly. And enjoying my surroundings. Like, the look of the return from the moments inside of the black and white potentially mom zone where we mm-hmm. have major Briggs's head floating off into the distance to the fun ball that we get to fight with, with a green glove. I acknowledge that it isn't something that is going to keep me immersed and keep my mind in the media like a great illusionist, but instead like its own strange art style, I'm appreciating the weird work of it and very fond of it. So it, to, to clarify you would still at this point say that the original Twin Peaks series and Fire Walk With Me are stronger. Yes. I think in that, terms of the writing, in terms of maybe the consistency of execution. Yes. But, but you uh, prefer the return. I prefer the return. But I think the best way I can describe it is both Fire Walk With Me as well as Twin Peaks, they still have their flaws, but for the most part, they are very well-crafted bowls. They are things that have went through their hard works and craftsmanship, have their unique shapes, and would go great in anyone's cabinets. In this case, I take the return and see the cracks, but the cracks are lined with gold, similar to a type of pottery in which all those broken pieces are molded into this new shape. You acknowledge the cracks, you look at the cracks, you know that this bowl was once broken, but I almost find a magic in the flaw to the point that I think that the gold lining works for my glance and interpretation of the work. 
So what you're saying is that Twin Peaks The Return made you finally crack. <laughs> proudly. <laughs> proudly so. And I think with part 18, before I went into my second viewing, you and I had a discussion off pod. And yeah. I looked at first at it potentially being David Lynch trying to make the perfect goose egg in this case of showing like many answers laid out and spoken clearly to an audience and leaving an overarching mystery towards the end as something not to be unlocked. But I do look at my second viewing, and I do genuinely think I understand. I think I do understand, the at the very least, the core mysteries and the core ideas using things such as a Lil Codex referencing Fire Walk to Me, which I will say comes to be important in the reading of Part 18. You heard it here first, folks, that the four-hour video analysis, Twin Peaks Explained Professor Edition... It's going to come soon. <laughs> no, it is not. It's actually going to come sooner than you may realize. It's literally going to be in the spot. we're going to sandwich a conversation about the middle between part 17 and part 18. Uh, we're going to talk about Judy. We're going to talk about Judy in the middle of this. A lot Judy's of this you have not important. told me, Professor. Yes. I do not know the full extent of what you're going to say. I am very interested. I'm, I'm glad you're interested because I do think, I think that your readings are fair. I think that you'll probably still hold well to your feelings, but I hope you can understand at the very least what I'm grasping at on this like reading because I do feel content with it. I Good. feel at peace with it. Good. I feel the opposite of peace <laughs> at this moment. I'm curious then, just kind of in the broad strokes of it, how do you feel about parts 17 and 18 as the end to Twin Peaks The Return or the just end to Twin Peaks? What do you feel like generally about those things? It's great. Genuinely, it's great. It's something where I was very surprised when I heard comments that you had mentioned that, like, expectations of another season are going beyond. I think that it is a good, bad ending closure mm -hmm. to the entirety of Twin Peaks, where we did have our sweet and fulfilled ending, but going even further in, thanks to Dale Cooper's flaws, we do end in something a bit more darker. And I do think balancing in that sense of goodness with that darkness is something that is very strong whenever it comes to Twin Peaks. I think it's a piece of media that almost needs those mm -hmm. odds and ends of the uplifting and the horrifying. And I, to clarify what I, what I think you meant by the idea of possible hopes for another season is that I remember when the ending for parts 18 and 17 came out, there were a fairly large number of people, fairly large number of viewers who expressed feelings online. I, I mainly speak to the Twitter through a, I mainly speak about the subreddit at that point, mm -hmm. but people wanting there to be a season four because they wanted more context. They wanted more answers. They yes. wanted David Lynch to have more, whether it's more with Carrie page or Richard and Linda or going through this like alternate timeline or anything like that. And mm -hmm. there was a fair amount of it. And I think there's still some interest of fans wanting another season. And I remember just looking at that and just being baffled because it's one thing to want more of twin peaks. If you liked the return and you think David Lynch has more things to do with the intellectual property of twin peaks in some way, I could see you wanting more of this if you think there's a story to tell. But to expect answers out of it, to expect understanding and context, I feel like David Lynch and Mark Frost had all of the power and control to tell the story they wanted to tell completely. And if David Lynch had felt like he wanted to explain things more, I think he would have. Maybe, maybe not. I think that... Even if, like, we could have the ideal, oh, you don't just get, like, nine hours, you get 18 hours, not just 18, you get 27. Even if we extend, I think that there still is 
something nice about something to chew on, such as the return. Yeah, I'm And genuinely, it's still, like, even if it remains as my favorite piece, even though I do Mm. love Twin Peaks, I think I'm very satisfied with, like, how we've come to the end now. Sure. I mean, I am operating under the belief that Twin Peaks The Return is like unprecedented amounts of a single person or two people having control over a television series. Okay. Like, I'm believing that Showtime gave David Lynch and Mark Frost more control over this than the original show ever had uh, at any point, maybe other than the pilot itself. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going into the assumption that, yeah, David Lynch and Mark Frost, they got what they wanted out of this series. Uh, I, I think at least Mark Frost has said things to that extent. Mm-hmm. So I think that again, if there were answers, we would have got them. I do then mm-hmm. want to pose the question to you that, you know, the final dossier is after this, you know, yes. that there is a shorter book that follows release wise yes. after the return. What do you think that would be? And I know you don't know. I know you're not huge into theory crafting, but if you feel like this was a complete ending for twin peaks, even more than maybe season two's ending more than fire walk of me, this ended twin peaks for you. Yeah. What do you think there is to tell in another book? If we are to recognize this as the dream, I think using a source material that David Lynch is fond of, The Wizard of Oz, I think it's something that the dream lives on even beyond the dreamer. It's something that the exploration of Oz without Dorothy is Mm. still possible because we have materials even outside of personal authors such as Wicked, such as uh, The Great and Wonderful Oz, there are points to still explore in an ideal world of a dream without that dreamer. So, okay. So that's what I'm expecting out of the dossier, if you Interesting. will. Okay. Just because I do have strong feelings on, like, the dreamer are there the any moment. Are there any things that you would want in that experience? No. Okay. Genuinely, no. I think that whatever it ends up giving forward, one thing that I... <laughs> I suppose to look forward to is an interesting statement, but I look forward to seeing what they're going to do with Tammy Preston. Okay. Seeing as the tones of Tammy Preston in the show as opposed to the book are right. two separate entities, in my right. personal opinion. And you already know going in that Tammy is involved in this book. Yep. Even from your cursory glances at it. From my cursory glances on the back flap of the page, it's literally yep. signed Tammy Preston. There you go. So let's dive into part 17. Not here. Tim Pinkle. Not Tim Pinkle. Diving into part 17... We have this section kind of at the beginning with the FBI where Gordon Cole reveals that for 25 years, he's been keeping a secret from Albert. Um, I don't know if you'd say it's as big of a secret or maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's the same as the secret that Albert had been keeping from Gordon Cole earlier. Yes. But now we find out that Gordon Cole had not told Albert and not told obviously the audience then that he and Dale Cooper in the past 25 years ago around then had talked with Major Briggs about the discovery of an entity named Jowday. Now, I'm going to assume, timeline-wise, this probably was around the time where Gordon Cole was visiting Twin Peaks, like, probably during Season 2, mm-hmm. and it happened off-screen in the continuity of Season 2. So before the ending of Season 2, very importantly. Yes, and I do think that, at the very least, him revealing this to Tammy as well as Albert is notable because of how Albert withheld information and shared it with Gordon Cole. As a reading externally, you can try to like put whatever pressures you mm-hmm. have on the characters from what were revealed on cohesive secrets held up from each other. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about Judy later. I think it's interesting, though, even outside of Judy herself or itself, is this sense of how important Major Briggs has become outside of the original show that between Mark Frost's book with the, the dossier, obviously having the archivist or one of the archivists being him, 
but then also what kind of mythologizing has happened where he has become this like supernatural avatar <laughs> reaching between humanity and the mob zone. Mm-hmm. He's like clearly at this point elevated to the status of like key player in the grand scheme of things. And given everything we know about Major Briggs from the show and from the return and from everything, probably a force for good, at least what he considers good, his best intentions, the dude has a pretty good track record. And I'd say that it's a logical conclusion to the character, in my personal interpretation, from what we've seen in the original show on how he does balance that seems uh, means of the mythological, like, spiritual end, as well as the seriousness and belief in his work job, as well as his, his duties. I think that transferring him into this role and how much more importance the secret history pins on things such as history and the much larger scope of the mythical ideas inside Twin Peaks that it it makes sense on where we put Major Briggs. I have mixed feelings about it. I guess Mm. my thinking also comes into the way in which it feels like Major Briggs has become a plot device. Obviously, unfortunately, the actor was not able to recur his role because he had passed away, but there is this sense in which he has been reduced to a floating head in a couple (laughs) scenes, and then this off-screen actor who basically is there to fill in the blanks of some of the plot Mm -hmm. and just be kind of shoehorned into situations. And it also feels a little bit weird to me, although I think there's good arguments against it. It does seem weird to me that we don't hear about Zhao Day in the... Secret History of Twin Peaks, because Mm -hmm. if this was some big setup for a mission or something that seems important with Major Briggs, it was a big, important thing. It's weird that it doesn't get brought up to my memory once. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's brought up in the Secret History at all, even bringing up the idea of Zhao Day. We get things that may be associated with the black magic, the Aleister Crowley sections. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something there, but it's never specific, and it feels like it's not being set up right. Like I feel like there was an opportunity to set this up better in the book and then pay it off in the in the return. Not that you would ever need to read the book, but it would be beneficial. Like if you read the book, it'd be like, oh, cool, that's there. Yes. But it just feels like they're disconnected. It feels like the major Briggs of the secret history isn't quite fitting in with the one of the return. And it's also personally a little tragic and sad to see one of the characters I really liked, again, feeling a bit like a shoehorned plot device. Not again, not like I have a better answer at the moment, Yeah. but I, I miss the personality of him. And right now he's just... He's just there to be a force. I think that him becoming a force kind of still contextualizes the ideas of forces inside the Red Room mob zone that we've seen. We, If I may say, the Laura Palmer of the Red Room seems different than the Laura Palmer we've yeah. gotten to know through the books sure. as well as the other bits of material still, but Laura Palmer's presence carries a weight. I think that even though we don't see a lot with Major Briggs doing some, as I've mentioned before, a little bit heavy lifting through here, Major Briggs is the type of person that could have easily found peace and ascension away from his mm. line of works, but instead has dedicated to his work to a point that he works in this intermittent zone to try to help out beyond. It's something that he is now a guiding force amongst them. And though, yes, of course, I'd love to see more performance, but as we've mentioned, he is someone who's passed away, but also this fate for him, what does that say for large of the character? I find it fascinating. It, he ceased to be a man dealing with doubts and regrets and concerns about his placement in, in the military and with the government, but then also his doubts about his ability to raise his son. And now he's become an omniscient tool for the story in the sense that he just has to, he like predicts everything. He knows everything. He knows this person, this person, and this person is going to be at this mm-hmm. this place here and there. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's a change in the character that I understand, but I can't say I'm entirely thrilled about it. Cause when I think of major Briggs, I'm going to be thinking about the man 
who is grappling with these secrets behind the scenes, unsure about his own conscience that he has to give this information over to a government that he knows has been sabotaging in the past. Mm -hmm. Given like this is where I think the secret history of Twin Peaks aligns better with Major Briggs for me. Because when we hear about the archivist, we get his thoughts, we get his feelings. He feels like someone who has to weigh things. Mm -hmm. And in The Return, he is a wiki. He is a he is a resource. He's a magic eight ball. He is someone that actively, for one, cannot speak, so we can't even get more dialogue. He does say blue as, rose. He does say blue rose, but he is still someone of a silent guiding force, and I do think that that do, can hinder things for a character for some people. For me, I see it as similar to his very silent mm-hmm. sitting inside of the chair inside of that mythical oasis, if you will. Sure. So I'm already familiar with it. I see that the shifts with Laura Palmer, this sense of ascension, ascension has changed him. Well, and then also part of it is that, and not to belabor this point, but yes. it's, I don't feel like it's a happy ending for Major Briggs, at least emotionally. Maybe no. it's supposed to be, but I see him as this neutral-faced, stone-faced, disembodied head floating throughout, repeating blue rose, and just kind of staring off in the distance as opposed to the image he gave Bobby of being in a vast veranda, vast estate, everything being beautiful with his son. Uh, I don't see that here. I see him as being completely separated from his humanity. I think that he is separated from his humanity, but if we do recall the events, and if we are to believe the final notes inside of the secret history, Mr. C very likely got involved with Major Briggs, and maybe those opportunities were ripped away by this very malevolent force for suffering. It's something that I don't think that this is a happy ending. I don't think this is a happy instance, and I think Major Briggs could probably put up a laundry list of other vacation options other than the potential mauve zone for what's happening to him right Mm -hmm. now. But it still is a reality that maybe he is cursed for his line of work from this point on. But I still think that that can be compelling to a point. Sure, and it doesn't have to be a happy ending for him. I would just say this is where my mixed feelings come in. And mm-hmm. when I think of Major Briggs, I think of a different form of Major Briggs than this version in The Return. Yes. That's how I guess I choose to remember the character. Maybe I'll say it that way. <laughs> Other things in the FBI office, I think it's notable the wording here with Gordon Cole that you know he wasn't able to shoot Diane's tulpa. He wasn't willing to. And Albert responds that you've gone soft to which Gordon Cole says, not where it counts, old buddy, which I'm going to assume means his penis. It's something hard to say because... It's something hard, all right, ha. according to Gordon Cole. Because, like, it's read off in a delivery that sounds like he's trying to say something more heartfelt. Oh, I take it as, instance. like, not like, where it counts. Uh, like wink, it, wink, nudge, nudge. That's how I read it. But I do think that his sort of, like, guest's air sigh would communicate something more sentimental. But the going soft is in that sentimentality. So I do think, like, it's a weird point where, like, uh, I don't know what he was going penis? for. I don't know what you're going for. And I think it's a weakness because the nicest way that I could put it is that David Lynch is much better of a director than he is an actor. From the line read, my first time watching it and repeated viewings, I still do take it as him saying that he can still, you know, intercourse properly. I've got my penis. And, and maybe that is, maybe well, that's something is where, really like, nuanced, but from, I don't think it's delivered in a fashion that I'm convinced Well, otherwise. what I was going to say, though, is that from a meta angle, though, I think what I've always interpreted that is like, don't worry, I could still, I could still screw with you to the viewers. 
Mm -hmm. I've, I've taken it as the director <laughs> saying, like, you may think I've gotten old. You may think I, no, no, no. You don't know what I'm going to do. You don't know what 17 you and 18. You don't know what I'm capable especially of. Especially 18. You think I'm just full of sweetness? No, no, I'm gonna no. I'm going to screw with your mind. Uh, don't worry. I can endure. So <laughs> I, I, I honestly have read it that way. Honestly, I prefer that reading. I prefer that reading over penis reading. <laughs> Which is kind of an acknowledgement of, like, yeah, I'm going to do this to you. I'll take troll David Lynch over penis David Lynch. Well, Maybe they're both. <laughs> One and the same. One and the same. I also don't get that they suddenly toast to the Bureau. Again, I'm thinking in real time, It just a few minutes ago, they shot Diane's tulpa, and the mood has been, wow, that's a real tulpa, so they do exist. Huh, what's going on over at the police station? Man, I wish I could have shot her. Toast! No, I think that since they poured themselves some wine, alcohol being served after an instance like that is kind of like focusing settling one's nerves. When it comes down to cheers to the Bureau, it's recognizing the duty above all else, their job above all else. It, it It's something that reads off as something that they just recognize the importance of mm, their work mm -hmm. over any sort of sentimentality. Okay. And I think that the dialogue read from... Albert is notable of that as well. Fair. It just feels, again, tone deaf of, like, the, the emotional <laughs> weight of shooting Diane's tulpa and hearing that Mr. C had assaulted and took advantage of Diane all those years ago. It's mm -hmm. completely undercut by, like, non-sequitur plot detail stories and all of a sudden cheering. It just feels like the heaviness of the mood is not being allowed to actually be recognized. And I think that that would be okay for Albert as well as... Tammy Preston if that was delivered through. I just wish I saw more from Golan Cole for, like, the conflict of it. I, I would have wanted more from Albert as well. I mean, Tammy's just there. Tammy's just sitting there, and I'll, and I'll say more in a moment, but I, I don't know if I can expect her to have a reaction as much other than just respecting maybe how they feel because she didn't really know Diane. Yes. She hasn't had a relationship with her this entire season. Yes. If you count the return as a season. Whatever yes. it is, a show, whatever. Yes, but we've also seen... Albert, as well as his explanation going forward, that his coldness also comes from a place of love. His sense of duty comes from a place of love. Maybe. So that's where having that point of Albert, eh. I think, makes sense for the character logically. Just because diving into the other hole seems to be more of a field that would spin off well with someone such as Dale Cooper. But I do think that the perfect person to break for this instance would have been I, I just Cole. think the emotional impact of the scene is not allowed to linger or resonate because of the fact that the story has to keep moving. And this is where, no matter what you think is going on with Day, I feel that the explanation Gordon Cole gives at the beginning of part 17 feels so blunt and so dryly mishandled. Like, for, for, for my feelings, it, it really takes me out of the emotion and out of the scene and almost becomes laughable. Okay. That Gordon Cole has to almost look the camera in the eye and explain Judy to us. <laughs> and it's just, it doesn't feel right at all for either in-universe, for the character to do this, but then also out-universe. It feels very plot contrivance. It's something that is taken out of the back pocket, if you will, to start taking notes down. Because it's only now, in this instance of now, leading in, that you are given this note. And I think it's mostly because it wants to keep this note nice and fresh for you as you're going in. there are ways to communicate information that are more natural. This is where, like... It just feels, oh, we're at the 11th hour. I guess it's time for me to say this I to mean, you. I mean, we had our time with Philip Jeffries that could have also kind of explored this through a sense of dialogue. And yeah. I do think that there were instances. I think that this is a bit flip-floppity on here. And that you saw me laugh a lot when this yeah, first we, came you, around. Yeah, you, you genuinely did. Now, your second time, did you find it still as funny? I was trying to pay more attention okay. to it because now knowing that it's extreme negative force called Joe, Joe Day, it is something that is... 
something that I'm chewing on mm -hmm. and something that I'm able to take in. But it very much comes off in that sense of like, I'm putting this down, I'm jotting this it's down. It's the delivery style, regardless of what the information implies. Yes. It's the way it's communicated, I don't quite like. Yes. Do you like it? It No, I don't like okay. it. I, I, I genuinely don't there. like it. It's in that same vein of, as you all know. Yeah, yeah But it's, exactly. the, it's a case it's, that it's like, but I've kept it from know, you. As you as don't As you know. don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is delivered very, very dryly like that. And, and again, part of it's the performance, but I think even it's in the script too. Like if you gave that exact same information to a different character who's like, let's say a very good actor, could they still deliver it in a way that feels natural? I uh, think so. I, 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 I think that like, if you do it in a sense that carrying on the emotion of what just happened and have that sort of like breaking point sort of like hit through, that's when like it feels like putting down yeah. those defenses after seeing that person disappear and see realizing maybe I should put everything on the table. The way I would phrase it. Then it would it, be a better framing. The way I would phrase it is that there are moments in Twin Peaks The Return where I feel the script is underwritten or not evocative of what it maybe should be doing, in my opinion. Okay. But then the performances elevate it to make it work. This is one of those cases where I think the script was not written in the way I would have wanted, but the performance did not make it work. Like I've so said before, I, I, think I it love, needed that pass. I love a lot of David Lynch's work. I'm not in love with his acting. I, I think an interesting line also is Gordon Cole saying that, you know, Dale Cooper told me if he ever disappeared like the others, like Philip Jeffries or like Chet Desmond, that if he disappeared, I should do everything in my power to find him. And yeah. I'm kind of just like, the more I linger on that comment and like take it seriously... I, I don't think the intention is what I'm about to say. I think we're meant to just like nod and smile and understand the importance of what's going on. But I'm like, wait a second. Like taking a step back, <laughs> did Gordon Cole do everything he could for 25 years to find Dale Cooper? There's a lot of unknowns. We don't know everything that happened with this past 25 years. What I would say though, is that if Albert's the only other task force member mm -hmm. and Albert didn't know this until now, mm -hmm. presumably Gordon Cole didn't have anyone else he could tell because who would he tell if he didn't tell Albert? No one seems to be more trusted. So <laughs> no one else knew but Gordon Cole this information, presumably. Presumably. Major Briggs and Philip Jeffries aren't active in the real Earth world right now. Yes. I don't have any evidence mm -hmm. that Gordon Cole has done anything to find Dale Cooper in the past 25 years. And it's something I don't have evidence for, to, or against. I just have to either trust him at his word or Which, just- Which, do you trust Gordon Cole? I never trust Gordon Cole, but it's one of those cases where I'm looking at him as like, now, did you study for the test, Gordon no, it's Cole? Being told it's like, of course author. I did. I stayed up all night. It's like, okay, Gordon Cole. It sounds Cole. like the author saying it, which yes. is what I don't like about the writing. And again, Gordon Cole at some points isn't even a character. It's just a mouthpiece for David Lynch. <laughs> and that is unfortunate. That is very yeah. unfortunate that that happened. And the only thing I really say is that the assignment given to Tammy with the Mark Frost book, with, with the secret history, that you could read that that is his way of trying to find Cooper because yeah. maybe the case that it's tied to, it was found in an active crime scene, which we still don't know from the return what that would have been, I don't think, right? Uh, we do not, actually. Yeah, I would, I would say assume that. it's going to be the one with, with uh, Ruth Davenport because if if uh, the Major Briggs was met there, it's possible he gave the dossier, you know what I mean, yeah. to them. But it's never connected in no. a way that I find, again, maybe it should have been connected mm -hmm. um, for some follow-through. Anyway, maybe Gordon Cole's way of finding Dale Cooper was to give Tammy this mission that would lead to maybe finding him. But... Based on the way Gordon Cole seems surprised by everything in the return, it's like anytime like Dale Cooper's involved, <laughs> Gordon Cole's like, Cooper? 
Huh. Like, it doesn't seem like he really knows that this is going to lead to Cooper. So I'm kind of just led to believe that Dale Cooper said, now, Gordon, if anything happens to me, like it did with Chet Desmond and Philip Jeffries, yeah. I want you to try to find me, do whatever it takes to find me. You got it, Coop. And then when Dale Cooper disappeared, Gordon <laughs> Cole just kind of sat on his hands for 25 years. Yeah, it's one of those cases with maybe he's like, I want to do everything in your power to find me. He never like set up a time limit. You could argue that since they were looking out for some like Tammy Preston for all this time to introduce to the Blue Rose Task Force, which mind you again, 25 years have passed. It's one of those cases where if it's like everything in my power was to just find like the perfect agent to bring along, uh, you really need to do some more lifting with Tammy Preston at that point to make it seem like she is the one to yeah, make that li weight lifted to make up for the 25 years or elsewise the secret history could be recognized as the last second attempts like the last day before the test. Again, 25 years later, that already is close. That's like 2016 when the dossier happens. So it still yeah. doesn't help with the bath. <laughs> and I, and I want to say that if this seems unfair for Gordon Cole, remember that Major Briggs is in the return as having that element where the military, there's that, I think it was a colonel, who literally has said, like, yeah, we've been getting these hits over the past few years. Yeah. They keep track of every time Major Briggs' prints have been found. There seems to be a semi-active investigation into what's going on with Major Briggs yeah. during this 25 years. So if you have a consistent <laughs> plot line where a government official and their organization are doing some things to mm -hmm. look into a disappearance yeah. of an official. Yeah. And then you have another one where they don't have any evidence. It kind of seems jarring. Like, it seems like if we wanted to communicate that there's been an ongoing investigation to find Dale Cooper, they've already shown how to show that with another case. They've shown it with another case, which might show to, like, the leaning of Gordon Cole's failures and flaws seeing as he's requested of this one thing, other people are able to handle this, but also maybe Cooper might have alluded to or spiritually felt in some fashion that a Mr. C may pop through and something needed to act against it. In which case, yeah. nothing act against Mr. C. Mr. Well, C was too powerful, a raging tyrant, and had made connection that made everyone's lives miserable. I understand that. And maybe Gordon Cole just wasn't strong enough in that case. I, maybe it just shows the weaknesses uh, of Gordon Cole. I understand that, you know, you're dealing with supernatural elements and Gordon Cole is limited, but when there's two people walking around who have the exact same <laughs> physical appearance and we know that Mr. C's fingerprints match, yeah. you're telling me there was no evidence of their existence for 25 years? Mr. C is really good at wiping the prints away. We know, we know that Dougie wasn't around for exactly 25 because there's like some you know, no evidence before a certain year kind of deal. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like if you were doing everything in your power in the FBI with the resources you have and there's two people identical to him walking around... I don't think there would be nothing. I feel like you'd find something. And this is where like, we have this discussion. I like this discussion. I yeah. think we're onto things. Yeah. If I'm thinking, what was the intent of this scene? I don't believe in my heart of hearts that we're meant quote unquote to read this scene as the failures of Gordon Cole. I think it's supposed to be like you said, here's some notes, take your information and go. Yes. I think we're meant to just say, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. Dale Cooper thought he might disappear. It's setting up. We got to do something about it. I don't think we're me meant to read into the fact that that <laughs> implies Gordon Cole hasn't done anything to our knowledge, to and our it, knowledge. And, or... I, and if it was supposed to be set up, it wasn't, it, it wasn't set up. It's something inside the background, which I do think that there's a fair amount in the return that it is. And whether or not you consider Mr. C to be a Carmen Sandiego figure in which it's like a good agent turned bad and is able to figure out what exactly the agency would look for and that's how they're able to hide under the radar, maybe. But still, nonetheless, it just continues to pile onto the flawless yeah. of Gordon Cole. In which I'm just saying, like, Gordon Cole, 
how are you doing? Because it doesn't seem you're doing good from your track record yeah, right here. It's like, uh, how dare you, Professor? I could have buried you in the ground years ago. You can't. Thank you for bringing that back up. And, and, and just to kind of maybe TLDR summarize all this, because <laughs> we've been going on for a long time about Gordon Cole. What this means to me... Welcome to the Gordon Cole Lockout. <laughs> what, what this means to me, though, is that there is a disconnect between how the writing is for Gordon Cole, yes. the on-surface messaging that he's this great guy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But anytime we analyze it and look at him, he seems like someone who's manipulative, deceitful, and generally does not actually follow his word and doesn't actually show any evidence of effort. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be a womanizer. He see, like and I almost have no positive traits, like actually. And I've you know I've kind of had to hold back a little bit because I wanted you to form your own opinion. Yeah. But you've independently formed your opinion that Gordon Cole is not reliable, not trustworthy. Gordon Cole just sucks as a person. But and is that, that be, is that but, how but, it's written? I don't think it's supposed to be. I don't think it might be how it's written, but I don't think that David Lynch is beyond writing those things in a character. Either. I wish it was, and if it maybe maybe. Maybe it's so obvious he's supposed to be written as a bad guy. Yeah. And we're big braining it thinking we're, we're small braining. I don't know what we're doing, but we're thinking for some reason that it's not intended when it actually is intended. I don't know. I'm getting mixed signals from the writing. And I think that that's a problem. Okay. And again, maybe it comes down to performance. Maybe it comes down to script both. Who knows? There's a reference in here that Raymond Rowe is an FBI informant. That's confirming that information. I don't have much to say beyond that. I've heard people say it doesn't have consistency because there are things that Ray doesn't know or does know that don't make sense because if Ray is an FBI informant and he knows this and this and this, shouldn't Gordon Cole also know this and this and this? I've, I've read some people theorizing, not enough that I can cite anyone right now, but I bet there's probably something to look into with that because it, it does feel a bit disconnected. And again, take your notes. This fills take, in a blank. Take your notes, fill in a blank. It, from what I've seen from Ray, I think that he's the type to play multiple sides, whether or not he is double agent, triple agenting. I think at the end of the day, Ray's looking out for himself. And you have that see. unknown element of the person who said they were Philip Jeffries, but does not sound like Philip Jeffries early on in like part two or three talking to Mr. C. Yes. That has not been clarified. No. Um, you can speculate that it's an FBI person. Or the usage of electricity can alter a tone voice or something inside of two different realms. But it doesn't even speak they the don't same have personality. A yes. Because the, from what I remember, the one in the voice seems a lot more certain they're against Mr. C. Whereas Philip Jeffries is like, Cooper, is that you? And then just seems kind of confused and gives the information. Like, it's not 100% feeling like the same person. I, I disagree in the respect that I do think that there are some dissonances. I don't think that they're far apart to try to make those connections. But I do give the tone of the first Philip Jeffries questioning to be like it, if I were to see a human form of it I can see the Philip Jeffries lighting a cigar I, and that uh, scene itself from I just think it's not clear it's it isn't clear it and, is not and, and, and how important that is to an individual viewer depends on what you think Ray and Ray Monroe's importance is yes I think we spend an awful lot of time with Ray Monroe for this story to be like oh he was an FBI informant don't worry about <laughs> it don't worry about the voice like I I don't I don't know it's it's again not satisfying to me uh at this point in juncture with all everything we've seen so far, can I now say Tammy is the worst character in Twin Peaks? Yeah. Okay. No, genuinely, as far as, like, you can see characters that are on the screen far less. I can say that there are certain characters that kind of have a, a bad itch on me for what they're going for. Like you've mentioned but, Lucy's sister before Gwen. Exactly. In like one episode. But I think that Gwen accomplishes her goal and what She's they intend with the annoying. writing. annoying, yeah. I think that, but the difference is that I don't think Tammy matches up with the goals of the writing. Again, we've complained about James and Donna. 
But James and Donna have interesting moments. They have interesting elements and arcs. We may not universally love everything about them, but I think there's things to say about them. I think there's interesting things you can do and analyze about them. I think there's potential there. I think that even minor characters who only appear now and then have potential of interesting things. Again, like, I think that even if you are set up with a bad tasting candy, like, as long as the whole candy's there, you know what the manufacturer was going for. Yes. This is where I, when I get Tammy Preston... I have half a candy bar. I open up the package of like a full-size candy bar, open up and see half a candy's bar there. Yeah. And in part 17, she just sits there when Gordon Cole explains all this. And Albert also has very little to say. He gets a couple remarks in, but Tammy especially feels bizarre that she's just kind of sitting there with no input, no nothing. And she shows up at the end at the police station, doesn't have any moment to be there. She just kind of like, when all is said and done, now that we've finished the return and we look at what Tammy's done, I haven't received anything from her entire career in the FBI in the return that give me anything that shows me she has the stuff. Tammy, we got one interrogation that she did fine in, but no real defining characteristics compared to, again, the one interrogation Dale Cooper had with Bobby or the interrogation with Donna. We got immediate characterization out of his interrogations or Chet Desmond, the way he interacts with people. Mm-hmm. I got nothing out of Tammy. And I, and I wish that that wasn't the case because in Mark Frost's book, she had personality. She had personality, and you could engage with it. If someone said that their favorite character is Tammy Preston, I would be almost convinced that it's coming straight from the secret history. Yeah. Because inside of the contents of The Return, if we look into Tammy Preston on piece of paper, it's a good summary and it's a good pitch for a character. But we do not get anything other than Tammy's in the background of Gordon mm-hmm. Cole. Gordon Cole stands too high and... Tammy sits inside of that shadow thanks to it. I want to acknowledge a potential more positive reading of the character from another fellow Twin Peaks podcaster. And also someone who I think is very well respected and very acclaimed within the community. Okay. And that is from Joshua Minton, J.B. Minton. Cheers. Who is the author of A Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks and co-host of two Twin Peaks podcasts, In Our House Now, which is on The Return, and The Red Room podcast. So again, very, very influential thinker in the Twin Peaks community. Fantastic. Quote from Twitter. Tammy Preston is a tulpa of Dale Cooper in one layer of his dream. She holds his investigative instincts, divorced from his petulant Lancelot complex, free to seek out whatever truth lies in this archipelagic, I'm going to hope I say, he uses big words, I hope I said that right, (laughs) archipelagic, like an archipelago or something like that, Mm -hmm. narrative. There's a reason she is the frame for Mark's books. So there's a few ideas to break down here. One is that this kind of works on the assumption that Dale Cooper is the dreamer. So for right now, let's say that might be that might be the case. We have we have our own theories. We might say later, but yes. Dale Cooper, if he's the dreamer, you can view the characters within his dream as what he called a tulpa. Yes. Um, I don't know if I use the word tulpa exactly that way at this time. Maybe I'll be convinced of that later. Right now, when I say tulpa, I usually mean a copy of someone like Diane had a tulpa or Dougie Jones was a tulpa. Um, maybe separate from a doppelganger, but very similar to a doppelganger. So mm-hmm. when I think Tulpa, I think clone. It sounds like what JB Minton here is saying is not that Tulp, not that Tammy's a clone, but that Tammy is a Tulpa by virtue of being a dream aspect. In mm-hmm. which case, every character in Twin Peaks is a Tulpa. Then, so if we establish all of that, the idea that Tammy represents the investigation instincts separated from what he calls the Lancelot complex, this sort of white knight hero complex to save women, etc. Yes. That she is pure investigation, seeking out the truth. What do you think about that? 
Here's the thing. Uh, first, I'm going to table the idea of Lancelot and the Lancelot... Court. <laughs> Lancelot, no, <laughs> genuinely, Dougie lives. La- like, Dougie lives, but is visited and houses... Glastonbury Grove, dealt. there's a lot of things. But still, like the Lancelot ideal, I want to still table for yes. later, nonetheless. Yes. With this respect, it's something where, like, the idea that we have from uh, Tulpas, I think, again, a lot of Twin Peaks... Verges on both literal and metaphorical meanings. But for the instances we've seen tulpas that are confirmed tulpas, we only see only just a very small handful of those instances. And the way that they die, exit this world, is very unique. So you're referring least. to Tulpa the way I usually mean it with a sense of a clone or yes. a doppel. Okay, yes. duplicate, yeah. So seeing those clones and duplicates that are the confirmed tulpas on how they interact with the space mm-hmm. and what we've seen from the scenes... Tammy would be so unique of a case, not only visually and not only physically, but also for the sake of style, that it's hard for me to separate. Uh, it, it's hard for me to feel the literal format. Right, I don't think when he it means feels that. like it's more metaphorical that right. she is like. I, I think I think Minton is referring to Tulpa as the sense of a dream figure, and if mm-hmm. it's Cooper's dream, everyone's a Tulpa. Yes, it isn't meaning a clone or copy. Yes, in any further respect beyond that, it's something of a reading that I can see for a framework works well for Tammy. But nonetheless, is not something that I'm fully convinced by. But mostly because the ideas towards the dreams, though it's exist in tulpas, I still have dividing lines at the moment for them. Mm-hmm. Like even if you are a false being, as long as you are real within the world, you are real. But you can have so copies beyond the copies. Idea of thanks at to at base, but that's only thanks to the existence of Dougie. Because Dougie, seeing as where he ends up, it's the hardest part about Dougie is that he's a copy of a copy. Thanks to right. the doppelganger through Mr. C and then being copied there, it seems like the Mr. C that we're, uh, not Mr. C, Dougie that we're introduced to by the end that's clones directly yeah. from Dale Cooper seems more well-adjusted as he's introduced from his family from the small amounts of scenes that we see. Right, and if we... If we take just the word Tulpa out of it for a moment, yes. do you feel that, in any sense, Tammy represents pure investigation instincts like what Dale Cooper would have if he didn't have the Lancelot complex? Because I don't think it's there. I, I think it may be getting close in the Mark Frost books. I, think, I do not think it's there in the return. I think it's close in the Mark Frost books as well. It's a close thing, not quite there entirely. I don't think uh, she's ever as on-the-nose sharp because a lot of what she does in The Secret History... And, and understandably, given the format, is that she looks at something, she'll verify information, she'll occasionally give some musings, but I don't get pure investigation enough only because I don't see her initiate a lot. She's just there to respond to something, and that's kind of her job. Yeah, it's her job. It is her occupation. She is doing as she was asked Yeah, I don't think it. it gives enough opportunity for her to show pure 100% Dale Cooper level investigation because of the situation the dossier is in. The return does allow for that, and we don't see it. She does not lead anything. However, I still keep this framework in mind going into the final dossier because I think that the reading could be interesting because I don't know how much Tammy is going to be poured into the final dossier. So we'll have to resume and see if she becomes pure investigation in that time. Based on the return, I would say that's a very favorable reading, and with much respect, I would say it's not substantiated in the return. Mm. Now to the meat of part 17. You keep bringing up meat. The nut meat. The nut meat. (laughs) Yeah, like the meat of the almond. Well, tell me more about the meat of the almond. So Mr. C has been chasing these coordinates the whole entire series of The Return. It's one of the most concrete things we can point to for his motivations. And they led him to this woods in Twin Peaks. Now, this, from what I've understood, is interpreted to be the same area where the portal opened up with 
dropping Nido and Andy's vision. And it, it looks to be the same area as well upon inspection. It's harder for me to recognize just because I don't recognize the sycamore tree at first. Maybe it was inside the background at the time. Not to mention woods are woods. Trees it's, are it's trees. It's the pool. It's the oozing puddle and the smoke and everything fits. So this is the portal area that they reach, which then would also be known as Jackrabbit's Palace. We're going to assume that they're one and the same or at least very similar because that's where Bobby was calling this place as Potentially well. Potentially someone adjacent to the okay, place. Okay, so the portal opens up. And Mr. C is transported to where the Fireman's Theater is. We're going to call it that. And there's a Major Briggs head floating. We've talked ad nauseum yes. about that. The Fireman levitating there, very similar to Part 8. Yes. Notably, in this instance, Mr. C is in a square cage. And also in the background, we see two iterations of what seem to be those strange bell shapes, which is yes. also very similar to the kettle shape yes. of good old Philip Jeffrey. So we could just say that potentially everyone's in attendance for this potential meeting of people who may want to act against Mr. C. Yes. As basically the scene is shown with the Sarah Palmer household yes. right onto the screen. The giant still floating in that weird sort of like plague stage puts the hand up, mm -hmm. swipes to the sheriff's station. It's like Tinder. He swipes left. Like swipe in a direction. I don't know if he wants to bang houses, but uh, we end up seeing this new space in which Mr. C is slowly floated into and shunted out to his own confusion. So with all this said, I want to lay out some groundwork that we'll be pulling from later just for a basis. Now, Till that there is some level of like assumptions that are going to happen here. I do not think this yes. is foolproof. This is the best theory I have. It is also a very common conclusion. I don't know if everyone's reasons are the same as mine, but follow me and, and maybe you'll pick apart uh, as well, Professor, if this tracks. We know that Mr. C has been looking for these coordinates. Yes. These coordinates lead to the portal. Yes. The default location that this would send him to is the Palmer household. Yes. The fact that Mr. C is in a cage and the fireman has been known to be against Mr. C and changes the location would assume to me that Mr. C was going to go to the Palmer house until the fireman intervened, that the fireman has changed the location of the output of that portal mm -hmm. with me so far with you so far. Now, what would be at the Palmer house? The best guess we would have is that Mr. C has indicated before that what he wants is on this playing card that he showed to Daria. Yes. It is that black circle with the antennae. Now, yes. that black circle with the antennae has been seen in one spot specifically and then alluded to maybe in two other spots. So the spot that's been seen specifically is on Hawk's map, the living map. And the way that Hawk describes it is like, that's an unspeakable thing you do not want to know about. It's awful. That sounds pretty similar to me to how Gordon Cole was describing Jow Day. Now, there's some more you could dig into, but the central premise here is that, okay, maybe that this antenna head is similar to Jowde. Now, that begs a question. Does that line up with Mr. C meeting with Philip Jeffries? Because according to Mr. C, he did not know who Judy was. There is a couple ways you can rationalize this. One is that Jowde became Judy. He might just simply not recognize Judy as the name. He's used to Jowde. Yeah. Sure. Uh, it could also be that he doesn't know it by a name at all because what he's thinking about, he doesn't even have a name for. Again, I think it I think it still works. I don't think it disproves that what he's seeking for may in fact be Jowde or Judy. He just didn't know it by that name. Philip Jeffries makes the comment that you've already met Jowde before. There's two ways that could work. If the thing that is Jowde is the experiment, that would match up because the circle with the antennae looks very similar to the head of the experiment in part eight. 
Granted, you have to have good lighting and a good screen resolution to see it, but it is so, to me, on the spot that it, for the head to have those little antennae looking the way it does and it not be related would be a red herring of the highest degree. So I'm going to assume that, yeah, okay, the experiment is Jowde. It is the thing he's after. The other way you can interpret Philip Jeffrey's remark is that if he's already met Jowde before, it could be a person that Dale Cooper had met before. Bring this all back. Who's at the Palmer house? Sarah Palmer. I think it's very notable to use something such as a nuclear bomb explosion for the example of first seeing the experiment because noting what the nuclear bomb does and what it causes, mm-hmm. noting Zhao Day, if we are to take the Gordon Cole at his word, is an extremely negative force. Right. To say, even in the lightest terms, that the dropping of a nuclear bomb to cause an extreme negative force that introduces something like Bob to the world is, well, <laughs> that is, I, I don't think I have to say much onto that. But mm-hmm. let's also look, I think, time and time again from Sarah Palmer's end. Using Zhao Day in this, and I want to go deeper into this later, we have a person who has been suffering for ages and ages Someone who, inside this household, everything horrible has gone into, and we are left with someone who is very much not in a good place. To say that there's an extremely negative right. force coming from the Palmer household, for whatever reasons it may be, I'll talk about it in the Judy end, but have that being a new place for to chase a Jow Day, if you will, I think it makes total sense in the narrative. And it especially makes an interesting microcosm in which even if it is something very personal and small or something cataclysmic, cataclysmic reading, it, even if it's big or small, uh, seems of extreme negative force and where that experiment, the, the sense of like that Jow Day can be birthed or erupted or handled, I think having that lead Mr. C and not fully know right. of that and have the mythical forces guide him to there, I think that I think that all tracks yeah. inside of a single point. And, and to clarify one quick thing before I continue here is that what I mean by Mr. C having met the experiment before is that inside of him is Bob and Bob was birthed out of the vomit from either, either birthed out, like being born or being teleported out of another dimension, either way, came from the experiment. Yes. So whether or not it's someone Dale Cooper met or whether or not it's someone that Bob had encountered, therefore Mr. C, both ways Philip Jeffrey's message tracks. Now, this is a lot of assumptions and kind of things fitting. There's no exceptions to the rule, but I think one of the key pieces here you would need to lock in for this theory would be, okay, well then how is Sarah Palmer Judy or Jowde? How does that even connect? There is a potential lore or mythological way to explain this. If you believe that in part eight, the girl, the young girl, teenage girl, who the frog moth enters is Sarah Palmer. And because of the timelines, because of the way things work, Sarah Palmer, I believe, to my understanding, is one of the only characters it could be if that young girl grows up to be someone else we know from the show. Yeah. Because this was set in like the 50s. She was that age that presumably she would then match up age-wise with Sarah Palmer in the original series as well as The Return. Yes. Everything tracks. Like, we even looked up, like, Grace Zabriskie's birthday, and it was, like, kind of... It matched up pretty well. It matched up pretty well. I will say that from what I'm understanding, either... And this is where (laughs) where it's getting into some fun extremes here. Either that is Sarah Palmer, or that is what leads to the avatar of Sarah Palmer. Yes. So... 
all these implications, what it all means, put that on the stove burner for right now. Let it I burn. Just, I just want to establish the framework for why a lot of people, I believe, I believe this is their reasons mm-hmm. for thinking that Judy is Sarah Palmer. Sarah Palmer is Judy. They are connected in a meaningful way from the frog moth of the vomit of the experiment leading into Sarah Palmer, that Sarah Palmer became an avatar or vehicle for an essence of Judy, that there may still be maybe a separate bigger experiment, Judy, because obviously we saw the experiment slash and dice Sam and Tracy. (laughs) That doesn't mean there can't be multiple instances of Judy's essence. Yes. That that frog moth carried in some way to it. What I don't have right now and what I'm interested to hear when we talk about Judy is why. Like Mr. C going to the Palmer house, being with Sarah Palmer, if that was his goal, he didn't know was the Palmer house. He didn't Mm -hmm. know was Sarah Palmer, but he wanted to go to where the coordinates would lead him. What would have happened if the giant, what would have happened if the fireman had not interceded? So Mr. C ends up at the sheriff's department. He interacts with Andy, Lucy, and then Frank Truman. Clearly the vibes are wrong. Clearly things are messed up. I will say, even though I don't like part 17, the eerie quality of having Mr. C interact with these people from season one and two of Twin Peaks, it's good. I like there's a sort of tension, the the irony that we know what he's like, but then also the palpable feeling that like they have to be able to sense some things are wrong too. But then the one who actually spends the most time with him is someone who never met him. So there's all those extra elements. I think that that feeling of this, malevolent force masquerading as an old friend, just walking among them. I think there's something good there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last very long and it doesn't hit the way maybe I would have wanted, but I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting idea. I think that it is communicating way, but with the absence of Harry Truman and what I would think would be better and more concrete now having maybe the position being taken up by Hawk, if you will, someone that's more personal, someone who actually knows him. Yeah. Yes. Having someone personal sitting there and receiving the call and going into that sense of like trust idea and action. It's something that still remains flawed in my mind on what the execution ends up, but still nonetheless is still a fun integration of the character. Yeah. I would wager that if season three had happened in the nineties, that if it would have gotten renewed either before Firewalk with me or after or whatever, I would assume we would have had more instances like this in the sense of Dale Cooper being the doppelganger Cooper pretending to be normal around his friends. The Mm -hmm. difference would have been that with the way the return is written, we had hours and hours of content of Mr. C being Mr. C. Yes. So the didn't see him walking around wearing Dale Cooper's skin with his old friends hits a bit different in a way that I do appreciate. Yes. That is a specific thing that wouldn't have happened if we just went straight into season three in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Meanwhile, at the same time in the jail cell, we get some back and forth with Nido making sounds, reacting especially to Mr. C's presence, and Chad trying to escape, and the drunk imitating a lot of what's going on before falling asleep here. Yes. Chad, notable here in the sense of he does try to shoot Andy before being thwarted by Freddy, which is important for the sense that Freddy has to be useful in the next stage of the boss fight. Yes, which, mind you, the most interesting thing, I think, inside the framework of this is that Andy's here after saying that he was going to go get Hawk, runs out one side of the door, goes all the way to the prison cell, which maybe that's a pathway to Hawk, I don't know, but 
regardless, ends up like being faced with this conundrum. Green glove guy goes through. He grabs nearly everyone from the jail cell, except for the guy who is bleeding. <laughs> and uh, as well as Chad, clearly doesn't want for Chad to be involved with this. And brings them back through the opposite door in the office. Which, if there's this weird wraparound across the entire sheriff station, seeing the sort of like flat like line, I doubt it. We, we've seen the sheriff station not only physically in <laughs> our world, but also from outgoing shots. So already that fun inconsistency there. But also it doesn't seem like Hawk's notified until right. like there's a gunshot. So I'll be honest, I don't believe this was intentional. I think this is just really confusing like writing and and maybe editing of the scenes. Unless you do believe in your heart of hearts that this was written in a way to be purposefully playful with continuity and with area locations, I think it's just poorly set up. I think that it is something that's showing that there's something going on with Andy at the moment that's strange and consistent in between his visions as well and what's happening with the fireman. Maybe even like a heavy amount of influence that's overriding his natural functions that... Yeah, could you lead can, you can read it positively or negatively, depending on what you think at was the going of, on. At the end of the day, those inconsistencies are still notable. Yes, for sure. Mr. C tells Frank Truman that he's in Twin Peaks for unfinished business. And again, at this point, it's unclear maybe to viewers what exactly that might be, although we're kind of leading to some ideas now with the Palmer household. And it seems like at this point, Mr. C is not suspicious, which I find really curious. Was he aware that he was in a cage and sent to the wrong place? Like, because we see him there, but he didn't, his face was toward the camera, not toward the screen being changed. Mm -hmm. So is he, is Mr. C aware that he has been sent to a different place? I think so, because he looks at it and says, what is this place? And he's still willing to explore it. I think it's just because Mr. C and by extension, Bob is confident enough in what he's doing that even if he's faced with this trap, he's still going to, approach it in a fashion that still is going to be like, well, I have nowhere else to go. Okay. Let's see what's in so here. So you think he has no plan going in. He's just going in to take the bait. He's going in to take the bait and overcome it because at the end of the day, like, yes, we do realize that the green glove will be able to destroy him, but does Bob know that? Or in this case, Mr. C know that? And being someone that... Is able Bob to, is aware of Freddy enough in the moment to react. He's so. aware enough in the moment to react in that instance, but... To know his existence in the first yeah. place, that's iffy. And also for the sake of, if I were someone who happened to be, like, nearly immortal by these weird, like, coal miners just kind of coming around to just, like, dig into my guts, rearrange mm -hmm. things to bring me back, I, I, I would be, have a sense of confidence, too. I think this is more of just you have to do a lot of the legwork yourself to make any sense of anything. Mm -hmm. So, Dale Cooper, uh, kind of a, a rapid succession here. Um, Frank is talking to Mr. C. Dale Cooper calls. Then Frank is made aware, wait a second, this isn't the real... Cooper in front of me. Then Mr. C senses Frank's hesitation and realization. And then a weird thing happens that they both draw their guns, mm -hmm. Frank and Mr. C. A gunshot occurs. We see Lucy is the one who shot the gun and had shot Mr. C. Yes. But in the midst of this, somehow Frank Truman's hat got lifted off of his head. Yeah, it's like a Looney Tunes thing. Like, you know, I'm so good at dodging balls. Like, woo! I want you to tell me what you think happened. Because there's no gunshot on the hat. It happens in a split moment, and the hat falls back down without ever showing any sign of the hat being shot. It's one of those shaky foundations. I think that it's shaking up the foundation to 
note that everything is going against Mr. C. Everything is pre-planned, predetermined, and maybe these overarching hands. <laughs> I love are that just when there's no to... sense of real conflict because everything's already predetermined. Yeah, but at this point, like it's more so it's like the perfect trap to the point that it's making Mr. C as powerless as possible. So there's a Deus Ex Machina making it so Mr. C can't win, and that's good. I did, it's up to you on whether or not it's good. In this case, I find it to be entertaining, strange, and shakes the foundation in a way that I find flawed, but fulfilling for myself. Yeah. In your case, I can see it as, well, that's weird, and I don't feel great about I, this. I feel it's like going to be very independent at this point. Really a non sequitur. Like, it just feels like a really unhelpful element to what's going on. Because mm-hmm. it implies that, like, it, to me, it implies that Mr. She... Mr. She... <laughs> to me, it implies that Mr. C had shot his gun but it shot like a blank. Like it shot no actual bullet. So a gust of air propelled out and hit the hat, but in an unnatural way, because normally it would blow the hat back. Yes. Instead, it blows the hat up. Yes. So my best guess is that, again, the fireman or some other spiritual entity is manually stopping this from making any sense and stopping it from working. Yes. And I find that to be, again, really uninteresting to the stakes of the situation that it's so predetermined that that's the case. Um, This is also where I think we can launch into the greater can of worms that is Frank Truman. We've talked at length throughout the podcast about Frank. At this point, I can now tell you that from my understanding, Michael Onkian, the actor for Harry Truman, he was alive my understanding, he was physically well, as far as I know, mm-hmm. and to my understanding, has never stated a clear reason why he did not return to the Twin Peaks with his role. Yes. The best guess we could have, I believe, after talking with other people in the Twin Peaks community, is that Michael Onkian had retired just a few years before, it was like five or six years before, Yeah. and chose to stay in retirement and not return to Twin Peaks. Yes. What I want to put forward here, and this is all speculation, this is, this is not confirmed, but I, I want to put forward my honest thoughts and feelings is that I would imagine David Lynch would bend over backwards to get Harry involved in some way. And by that, I think get Michael on involved mm-hmm. based on the way that he had the Skype call with Warren Frost based on the way that he made sure to accommodate for Catherine Coulson for the mm-hmm. log lady. I think given how important Harry Truman is to twin peaks, I would say Harry is no less important than Dr. Hayward. Say how much, see what, <laughs> would you, would you agree with that statement? I agree with that it's statement, not less. yes. If Michael Onkian didn't appear, even in phone calls, we don't hear his voice. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a sign that Michael Onkian did not want to do it. Even if it meant a one-time phone call. Mind you, again, people's limitations, psychology, as well as recognition of their, like, retirement. Like, the mindset of Michael Onkin is left unknown. And I think one thing that's very notable is that even with actors that may have taken breaks or times away from acting, I still see from time to time pop up into things such as the special features. Yeah. However, Michael Onkin, I've only seen once, but in the background detail of someone actually having a camera on he the side. He seems to be more private He may be more private than any anyone else that we see right. inside of Twin Peaks. We also don't see other key players too. Like, I don't think we've seen Donna's actor very much like Laura Flynn Boyle. No. You know? So it is one of those situations where we don't have the full context. We may never have the full context. The moment that Michael on Kean says is publicly in some format that he wanted to do it. He loved the script, but he wasn't able to. I'll believe him. hundred percent. Hey, Mike. Mike, can I call you Mike? Uh, you know where to email us as well as the comments <laughs> to us. Snake Eye Dreams point. at gmail.com. Just please, could you please uh, tell us a little bit more about this uh, information? What I can't help but speculate, though, is withstanding that evidence, not having that, mm-hmm. 
I'm wondering if he got the script for the return. Again, all, all speculation here. Yes. Do not cite me. Citing you right now with my eyes. I wonder if he just turned it down. I wonder if he saw the script and saw what they were going to do with Harry and realized he didn't want to do it. And let me paint why I would say that might be the possibility is if I'm imagining I'm the actor for Harry, I loved working with Kyle MacLachlan. We had this great dynamic in the show and also you had this dynamic obviously with Josie and Wibbus of the law enforcement. Yeah. And in the return, assuming that Frank Truman is what Harry was going to be. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually a pretty good argument that that's the case. He would have spent most of the return doing some phone calls, visiting a couple people, generally having some marital problems. Mm -hmm. And then his interaction with Kyle MacLachlan is limited to an interaction with the evil Mr. C and then maybe one or two words with actual Dale Cooper before the end of everything here. Mm -hmm. I would maybe look at that and be like, this is not the character I wanted to be. That's what I might feel. That's what you might feel. And I do think that that's where the personal angle comes in. And maybe that might be a case, but I see it in the same respects on like how I can see like maybe Goran Cole did something in the 25 years. It also is something in so heavy a speculation. It also leans into why I think Frank Truman is an uninteresting role. Yeah. I, and again, say what, you know, Robert Forster, I know was a very talented actor. He was in line to be Harry. I think the character of Frank Truman amounted to very, very little for me. As a viewer, when I think of characters of Twin Peaks, even characters in the law enforcement, I do not think of Frank Truman at the top. Frank Truman is written in to be another true man. And that's it. It's, it it very much out, feels like you could have put uh, Michael Onkian's role as Harry Truman inside of it. Yes. Just cut out all the scenes that have Harry about. be married in this unfavorable situation. <laughs> he calls himself in the hospital. No, I mean, in all seriousness, <laughs> though, if you remove the phone calls to Harry and you just have now Harry is the one who is in this marriage. He's the one doing all these different things. Yeah. Nothing changed. It literally would be the exact same thing. I agree. So this is where I go back to my old statement. Hawk should have been sheriff. Hawk should have been sheriff. It all depends on when they knew what. If they mm-hmm. didn't know Michael Onkian was going to be involved until too late, they couldn't write the character out. They just had to replace. I understand you don't want to recast Harry Truman. Yeah. I would rather they invent this new brother character, put him barely mentioned in the book to set it up, have a new brother character, fulfill the same role so the script can be kept intact as much as possible. You know, have a few phone calls to Harry so we know that, you know, what kind of happened to the character. I get why this might be a thing you have to do if you're not given a lot of time to react. Mm -hmm. If, however, they had the time to plan in advance, I wish they would have removed the Harry Truman, Frank Truman role reallocated things to Hawk, maybe some things to Andy if necessary, maybe some things to Lucy if necessary. And I just think that Frank kind of wasn't helpful to the story. Yeah. And having the Mr. C encounter, it's kind of interesting having Mr. C talk to someone who doesn't know him, but it's also like how much more powerful would this moment have been if it had been Harry Truman? Absolutely. This final conversation is Harry Truman looking at his old friend who used to have such amazing chemistry with. And it's that. It's I, Mr. C. I think more than anything, it's the trust that puts into the phone call. Instead yeah. of like going on more what seems to be a maybe a spiritual whim or just something predestined, having someone that knows him and hears his voice and is looking at another person whose tone might have like made this like off-putting sort of like stare down go through, I think it also strengthens the phone call with actually like Dale Cooper. Do you attribute any significance plot-wise or thematically to Lucy being the one to shoot Mr. C? Because I don't. I don't see any meaning. I, not that it has to, killing, but it's like, I don't see that there's like a reason why it would be. Killing a receiver of information, killing the cell phone. 
Don't, I don't <laughs> that's know about, the closest thing that I can really think of. Rough. Because we're dealing with electricity, we're dealing with yeah. those like receivers that aren't attached to any lines. D- Mr. C is detached. That's the best thing I can come up with. Okay. She kills the cell phone. Mr. Cell phone. Because if it had been Hawk in the exact same situation. He can't kill Mr. Cell phone. Mr. Cell phone too powerful. I, it had to be I, Lucy to finish that arc. It's really weird. Like looking, <laughs> looking at it between Frank's role and Lucy's role and Andy's role, it's really weird how absent Hawk is. Like you were saying before, it's unclear if he like even knew to be there before the gunshot. I think he yeah. heard the gunshot and came running. That's how it came across to me, even though Andy again was supposed to go look for him. Yes. I feel it's weird that after all the setup Hawk has had in the return, he's just kind of walks in late asks what's going on, and then gets an answer, and then that's it. He's just there. Yes, He's one we, of the many bodies that are in this room. We already went past Hawk's heritage. What more do we need? Hey, you know what time it is? No. No, hold on. You know what time it is? <laughs> it's time to count how many people are in the room. <laughs> <laughs> this whoosh sound has been an all-purpose sound effect to signify a new segment I'm calling how many people can fit in maximum capacity in the sheriff station. This seems like a fire hazard of a section. So, Mr. C is on the ground. Frank Truman is there. Andy's there. Freddie, Nido, James enter after Andy. Hawk joins. Lucy joins. We're at eight currently. Dale Cooper comes running in with the Mitchum brothers. We are now at 11 people. Later, Bobby enters. 12. Gordon Cole, 13. Albert Ta- Albert and Tammy, 14, 15. And then you add on Candy, Mandy, and Sandy for 18 people. You're not done yet! I'm not done yet. You're not done yet! We almost forgot the dirty coal miner woodsman people who the also woodsman. come dig in. So we have to add three more unnamed people. So that's actually the real reason they were dangerous is because that put the room over maximum <laughs> <laughs> it became a real fire hazard when the when they started appearing. Oh, no, you're really a fire hazard. You don't say. Yeah, and then Bob, if you count that as a separate person. My point is there were 18 characters standing in this room. 21 to 22 characters, yes. Whatever you want to categorize it as. I'm curious with your thoughts. When all is said and done, do you like everyone being there in that room do you feel like anyone was there that didn't need to be? Do you feel like anyone was missing that should have been there? It's a duality of a question because do I think that there were any people that shouldn't have been here? Plenty! Do I think to myself that having them all there adds anything? Yes! Because it is something that not only were you were all there, right. everyone is there, everyone has kind of like come together into the singular it's the curtain spot. call. It's a curtain call. It's well, some... not really because the curtain calls later. It, but... He's calling for the curtain. The curtain is closing. It's a curtain call. It's a curtain One curtain closes for it to open again. A new act begins. Perhaps so. Bob. Freddy. Hey, hey Bob. Hey, Bob. I'm going to hit you with the most startling information. You love this scene as much as I did. I hate this scene. This scene. As much as I loved it? I don't know if it's my worst (laughs) scene of all Twin Peaks because there have been some real zingers with, with some moments in the return. But this is so ludicrously bad. Mm. I don't know what theory about Twin Peaks would justify this for me. Bob emerging from Mr. C. Freddy, this is me destiny. Puts on, I already, already has the Hulk glove on. Can never punches take it off. Bob, punches Bob into hell, or at least into a hole in the ground that burns on fire. The Bob Orba reemerges, and then Freddy punches to shatter him. What the shattering implies, up to you. Do you think that's the death of Bob? Is it since the fragments move up or whatever, does that mean like Bob is still alive, but like just removed from the situation? Does it insert a coin to continue? What does this mean for Bob? I would say regardless of what you feel, Bob is defeated by Freddy. 
It is something where I think that Bob is defeated by Freddy. Bob is completely defeated. And I think it's notable for two things. One. How bad it is. <laughs> I, I will say before I get to these two things, I do love the cinematography, but also in that same way that it's acknowledging. You like the special effects. I love the style the return goes for, which does apply to the special effects, the framing, the camera movements. A lot of it. I'm in love with. And maybe it's not for the correct emotions, quote, quote, uh, what I'm supposed to be feeling because when you were watching it with me, I was laughing out loud through this. But, uh, but again, I was laughing out of pain. I, I was having a great old time. But he punches down and that's where things are set aflame before Bob returns up. He punches and then the it goes up. And instead of making a hole in the ground, it sends and clips through the top of the ceiling like a Gary's Mod situation where it just like disappears off into the distance, uh, not detecting the ceiling. I think this is notable because the physical framework of what Bob was within for that Mr. C, we see later on in part 18, sitting still non-reactionary on fire, almost like an empty vessel, mm -hmm. if you will. It's very fun. I think, I think starting part 18 with the image and loud sounds <laughs> of Mr. C on fire is very funny. But the physical form caused a physicality in part 17 when Bob is punched down and makes a hole. Meanwhile, when Bob is defeated and sort of like disappears into the air and sort of is gone, I feel is a true final death for Bob. Just because it fits enough, seeing as we don't see even a remnant or an inkling of Bob or Doppelganger in Mr. C later on. That's all very lovely, Professor. I really am happy for you. I'm going to put a sticker on your assignment. You get a B minus. Yay! I pissed! I don't think I have to explain why I don't like Freddy. Yeah. Like, here's the thing. I feel like there are some things I want to qualify, I want to explain, I want to nuance. They, like, I do not know if anyone listening, I need to convey why someone might viscerally dislike having a character who we barely got to know suddenly show up in an episode, go on like a five to 10 minute, however, probably five minute, five minute long exposition about their backstory. We don't see anything. We're just told about it. Then he shows up, incapacitates Chad and punches the evil that men do out of existence in a punch fight. Why that might be a problem for someone who loves the idea of Bob as a psychological representation of trauma, yes. of masking, the reasons why I like The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. I don't know if there's anything in Twin Peaks more opposed to The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer than Freddy versus Bob boss battle. No, absolutely. I understand where that comes from because in this case, it's very much in a black and white sense, maybe not in lodge form, but in check chessboard form. Uh, this Deus Ex... Rock'em Sock'em Robots is probably the better app comparison. No, 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 no. I think chessboard is perfect, not only for the black and whites, but also for the sake of underhanded and backseat tactics of being like distracting with all these elements. And in meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, the fireman pulls a rook at the back end to try to catch him off guard in order to try to finally finish off the king in the back while being surrounded by other pieces. I think that you can actually play a fun chess metaphor when it comes hey. to the plannings of the firemen, but it does make it for many people unfulfilling because it still is bringing up a British deus ex machina. See, like there are a lot of stories out there where the hero is a chosen one who maybe has a magical weapon or a magical power that makes them uniquely equipped to defeat the bad guy. It might be a chosen hero or knight who has a sword that can cut through this monster or something. Yes. That is the situation of Freddy. But imagine that that character is not the main character. 
Mm-hmm. Imagine that that character only takes up maybe 1% of the total screen time. Yes. And imagine that the villain that they are fighting has been in the past used to represent abuse, assault, incest, horrible, horrible things, mm-hmm. and has always been on the fringe of maybe not corporeal, maybe corporeal. And one of the most interesting things about them was that sense of like, how real are they? How real are they not? What does that mean? To put the idea of the chosen hero with the magic weapon into this narrative, I find is not only badly set up because of how little Freddy is actually utilized. Yes. Not only is it badly set up because of all enemies, Bob is who you chose to defeat this way. It's such a bad resolution for this character. Yes. It's also just terrible. I I don't agree with the visuals and the way you present it. It is, to me, laughably bad. It is Mm -hmm. something that, like, it's just this dumb-looking orb with Bob's face on it going, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and then and then this is me, Destiny. And, oh, he's getting beat up. He's getting beat up. Then he punches him. Oh, he's getting beat I just, I don't know what to say about it. Like, I could, I don't know, blah, 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 parallel to the boxing match that Sarah Palmer was watching, blah, blah, blah. Um, fill in the blanks there if you want. I just, I find this to be underwhelming and bad from almost every angle. And Freddy is just this situation where, like, Maybe this could have been interesting if he was a character. Maybe it would have been interesting if Bob was something that made sense to defeat with a glove. But it just doesn't work on any conceivable level for me. At this point, the most conceivable levels I can are from the interpretive metaphors, not only in the color green being the aspects of the dreams overcoming, as well as what we've seen from the fireman, in which I do think that he is very much acting as that avatar, using this green jade glove. When the world needed him most, Freddy was there. Exactly. It's something that works in the mythological ends, but it is not something focused on that mythology because we're following completely different characters from it. It's something happening into the side that coalesces to a finale. Following. <laughs> he just asserts himself at the end. He asserts, well, no, but the thing, we don't follow that character. We have him in instances, but we follow everyone else around it as these other avatars are working in the background. And, and, and I think almost any form of criticism I could levy against the return or other pieces of media, it's got to be contextual. Yes. Is there a situation in which I could find great enjoyment out of suddenly out of nowhere, the real hero coming in and defeating the bad guy when we didn't even know the guy, like it could be a comical moment that we've spent this whole entire story preparing for something. And then at the very end, some random hero shows up with his weapon and defeats the big bad. (laughs) Could I find that funny in some executions? Yes. Yes. This is not that story for me. I don't think it's that framework and I don't think it's that tale. I think that as you said, it comes up in a sense of humor and I don't think you're going to get that much humor so out of it. What from did the it mean to you? What do you like about like not not the visual effects? I mean, that's obviously something you like. Mm-hmm. But from a story's perspective, how do you feel about Bob, the evil that men do, whatever you think Bob represents, mm-hmm. being defeated by Freddy with a green glove? So for clarification, the chess match that's happening for the black and whites for both sides to go through, I do think that the firemen acting as putting all these pieces into play. And having this rook play in the background, that being Freddy, is something where these forces in the mythology trying to act against Bob at the end of the day, which seems to represent an opposing end, this is just a triumphant outcome of entities far gone that we have to step ourselves away from in order to kind of see the scope on. And in that respect, it's fun in a mythological sense or fun to see as a growth towards the fireman's character. As a finale bit, I find it humorous in its flaws. 
I don't believe that I am alone in disliking this Freddy scene. And I think some people, even if they love the return, also might have some problems with it. And one of the responses I've seen to this feeling is I have seen in the past, maybe there's still people who feel this way now, the reading that Freddy defeating Bob with the green glove is purposefully bad. Mm -hmm. That it is meant to make a point. And a lot of times what people will do is they will say that the ending of 17 with Freddy is meant to show a more stereotypical ending with a superhero type of media mm-hmm. where the hero defeats the villain with the big weapon and it's meant to be flashy with no substance. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be thin with no substance. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that David Lynch and Mark Frost are using this as a ex- situation to parody, satirize, or comment on superhero media or classical storytelling. I think it is what it is. No, That's I my agree. feeling. Yeah, I, I, I do think it is what it is. I do think it's experience, mostly because this style of cinematography and this course we've been seeing has been present through The Return. I think for a lot of people who love The Return, there might be a pressure to reinterpret Freddy this way because it makes everything still work out. Mm-hmm. But I would challenge those who love The Return to consider that maybe the thing is just bad. Maybe <laughs> it's not bad for a reason. Or maybe you want to take the professor stance here and that it's good, actually. But I don't think it's bad on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's either good or it's bad. I don't think it's bad on purpose. (laughs) Unless there's better evidence. I haven't seen that evidence in The Return or in other David Lynch media that he would do that. And it just doesn't read that way to me. He's someone that may try to talk about uncomfortable ideas and will talk about things that he believes as truths in a new context. But I haven't seen many cases where he comes forward and tries to make commentary on the outside, Mm -hmm. like in a way that's trying to be like, hey, here's your commentary before it dances with the cane off the stage. May I say a positive thing about part 17 in this section? Please. I really like the music that plays when the woodsmen are working on Mr. C and Bob comes out. Yes. That very haunting, slow, not quite like dark circus kind of vibes, Mm -hmm. but it's that organy kind of music that's playing in there. It's very eerie. It creates a very jarring mood, the lighting getting dimmer, seeing Dale Cooper running into the sheriff's department. Yeah. I think the mood of that particular moment before the boss fight yes. is very good. It is very good. I think it's very solid. I think that when it comes to a tone setter, they do accomplish it well. I think that both at that moment, at the end of the fight, as well as, maybe you'll disagree with me, post-fight in which mm-hmm. we have that like, thick atmosphere built up with yes. Dale Cooper's like Fate, like faded opacity yep. to face. Yes, I do lingers. really like that image. Mm-hmm. I really like that image as well. It's the it's the it's the meat, the the nut meat, the almond <laughs> meat in between. You take a piece of bread, take another piece of bread. It's good bread. It's it's well made bread. So, in between, you filled it with nuts. It's a sandwich made out of almonds, and that does not work from a textural standpoint. It doesn't work from a, like you're gonna bite into it, and all the almonds are gonna fall out. Maybe if it was an uncrustable where it was like sealed, it might work. It's like, maybe a better thing is not like all, like all meat. Maybe it's like a cashew meat, which you're supposed <laughs> to like eat the middle of the cashew, but you feel that you just like bit straight into the whole cashew and you're like, oh God, these shards are just everywhere. This is horribly uncomfortable. Why is it like this? But then you get to like the end of it. Like, oh, that's a nice flavor. Uh, after the shards have passed through your system. Like a shelled cashew? Like a shelled cashew, yes. Oh, never seen a shelled cashew. 
I haven't. I've only oh, seen... Oh, wait, Pistachio. That's oh, what you meant Pistachio? I meant Pistachio. I was, like, I was trying to figure it out because cashews normally don't come shelled. <laughs> like, they already... <laughs> sorry. They normally come shelled. They don't come, you know, unshelled. Pistachio. That pistachio. makes a lot more sense. That's delicious pistachio. I bit into a... Raw, okay, okay. I got you now. We're all good. And the, <laughs> you know what the green inside is? That's the glove. Yep, the green inside. No, that's the bad part. No, I don't that's know. the bad part. It's reverse. It's like the interior is like some. It's a reverse part. pistachio reverse where the green pistachio. part is on the outside. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, the whole idea of having the superimposed Dale Cooper, it's very ominous. It's very eerie because it does a very good, I think, juxtaposition where we have Dale Cooper saying very confidently all these things and it has a sort of positive tone. Don't get me wrong. There's some bittersweet elements of a goodbye. But the tone of what he's saying seems a lot more positive as an ending. But then there's this face that looks like, I don't know what I would say. The It's almost either between emotionless, but then also just like a tinge of like eerie quality to it. And then that slow, we live inside a dream. That just, again, there's some kind of jarring nature here. Now I want to highlight something, whether we take it and leave it or take it and run with it. Yes. The moment where that begins. Mm-hmm is that Cooper gets the hotel room key from Frank, who I guess had not had a chance to give it to Harry yet. Yeah. And, you know, Cooper tells Bobby, you know, what your father has done. He, and Cooper tells Bobby, what you know, your father's well aware of what's happening here. Uh, this has all been kind of set up for us. We get Nido stepping forward, and Nido's face cracks open. Uh, we see the red room, and then it's Diane now. The moment when we get the superimposed image is when Cooper sees Nido and then thus Diane. What I find weird, and maybe worth some query here, is what exactly happened, because Cooper seems otherwise very confident, very sure of things. This is all going according to some kind of plan. But when he sees Nido slash Diane, there's this look of, like, confusion. Like, he looks at her and he doesn't expect her to be there is the reading I get. Yeah. Everyone else, he's totally cool with being there. He knew this person and this person and this person were going to be there. He knew about the room key. He knew where he was going. He knew all those other things but he didn't seem to understand Nido being there. I don't know if it's because of the form Nido has. He didn't expect it to look like Nido. Maybe when it became Diane, it was normal again, but I find it weird, potentially important. Maybe, maybe not that the moment the superimposed image starts is when that happens. I think that the, there's like a schism. There's a schism. And that, that comes to question, like, what is Nido at this point? Right. I think I think that when we see the effects happen, very similar to the falsehoods or the tulpas, where, like, something happens to the physical form and then the Red Room is involved. We've seen the Red Room sprinkled, like, throughout the world in a way, whenever it needs to, like, phase in and phase out. I just had an idea. Go for it. I don't know if this tracks because of a key difference between the elements. Mm-hmm. But anytime we've seen like situations with like Tulpa or Tulpa like entities and like something happens with their head or face. Um, I think of the red room when their faces do the cracking and the orbs glow and stuff. And yeah. we see Philip Gerard have to look away. Yes. Now part of me wants to suggest the idea in my head is like Dale Cooper did not look away. He looked at the transformation. Did that do something? The difference I get, though, is that it doesn't have the same light effect. It's not exactly the same. No. That's what makes me want to say, like, wait a second. Did something happen wrong or unexpected because he didn't look away from the transformation? 
but does it matter that it's not one-to-one with what happened with the other transformations we'd previously seen? I think it's most certainly chewy with that. I think that the difference between this sense of like transformation is that it's not a transformation. I'm using the context of the Red Room appearing in certain zones, mm-hmm. as well as the existence of Nido being a potential just false entity. And you could go as far as Tulpa if you'd like, but I just take her as a false entity and then connect that to the end of season two in which... Say, for example, Annie is a key or doorway that leads into a situation with the Red Room. In this case, I interpret Nido as a key or doorway that allows Diane to enter back Mm -hmm. in. Because as we recall, Diane was stuffed away thanks to Mr. C. And instead, the Tulpa was going to take her place externally. So, But then again, what does that do for (laughs) uh, poor old Nido? I also want to bring up the potential criticisms of Nido as a character. In Twin Peaks The Return, we only have two recurring main, if you want to call them main, uh, characters that are Mm -hmm. non-white. Hawk is obviously the most known character, um, a returning character from the original, who we still call Hawk, even though in The Secret History, I think he had fairly good arguments against using that name, but The Return still does use that name. So anyway, we have that character. And then we have Nido as the only Asian character in Mm -hmm. the particular work. Mm -hmm. And Nido's character is voiceless, is purposefully made to look jarring and kind of unsettling in appearance. And then Nido is basically erased so a white woman can speak and exist. And I do think that there are ways to criticize this in the sense that Twin Peaks The Return has a very predominantly white cast in a way that is far and above um, what I see in most television shows, I guess, in terms of like homogeny, despite being in multiple locations in multiple dimensions even. Uh, But not only that, again, multiple states, multiple cities. Yeah. There is a startling lack of characters from any other background or ethnicity. And the one Asian character here is Nido. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think these criticisms were brought up by Sazine Kohler, who I had mentioned previously, uh, appeared in Laura's Ghost. And I am not the best person to criticize this in the sense that I am a white person speaking this. But if I was a fan of Twin Peaks, a person of color, I could see maybe a sense, and again, just guessing how I might feel in that hypothetical, okay. that this show does not really have a place for me as much because you're using all the char- the very, very few characters you have uh, who are not white um, basically as interchangeable plot devices. Nido's not even a character. Is this better or worse than season two? I mean, that had Tojimura, but at least with Tojimura, you had Josie to balance against that. I don't know if there is any redemption for Nido here as a plot device. It kind of bothers me. And it's another instance of David Lynch using someone with an unusual appearance for shock value. Potentially he has a history of doing this where someone's really tall or someone's really short or someone's got a face disfigurement or someone's got some weird proportions. They're the supernatural ones. And I can Mm. read a negative into that. Like I can see an argument that people with different appearances are othered. Mm-hmm. and that can be a bit unsettling. You can't just have a, like a regular person in Twin Peaks that has like a disability or has like a something different about their body. That that to me is a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not saying it ruins the entire show for me, but I will say I can understand the concern. 
It's something where, which, mind you, one of the people who has a potential disability that... Well, actually, there's a few characters that do have noble disabilities, but one with more camera time inside the original Twin Peaks, it's almost as if like, there's a potential layer of mythical that might be applied for to Harold? her. Not, not, well, not Harold. Okay. Uh, for Donna's mother, which is a character of a disability representation Fair Fair that is inside a wheelchair. I don't know. I guess my question for you is, what do you think of Nido now? Like, what do you think was going on with Nido as an entity in the previous mob zone, as well as now that you have the context of Diane either being within the shell or swapping places. What, what is Nido? You mentioned that she's a doorway. I think like, what do you like about that? Why is that there? Why do that? I think that at the end of the day, it continues to probably be the largest scheme of plans of the firemen working in the background Mm -hmm. or entities similar to the firemen working in the background in something that will either a be the final reward for Dale Cooper at the end of his long journey, or B, throw things off for Mr. C if he plans on just keeping Mm. Diane in the small little corner and allow a means of transport. I think that if we go for the doppelganger angle, if we see the actions of Nido slapping at Dale Cooper, stopping him, but at the same time, the experiment slashing at these other people, doppelgangers of the good and the evil, the yin and the yang, this is where this entity is going to be more giving. It's the kindnesses of the world as versus with the great evils of the world. So in this case, this entity either is an open hand or is an entity that gives an open hand Mm. to give forward for something good. So when Dale Cooper's face is superimposed, we we live inside of a dream. Mm -hmm. Why is that there? That is there simply because it's to create not only a dissonance for the audience on what's going through Dale Cooper's head, recognizing the people around, but also the feel of the atmosphere being like, we live inside this dream of foreboding essence around all these people that didn't look at all these people to then have him look across all these entities, all these beings and say, I hope I can see you later on. Almost in that like longing sense, that goodbye sense, that worries. I think that it's Nido exists inside of this realm for sure, but it's not directed at Nido specifically. So when it started is arbitrary. Arbitrary, yes. If anything, if it's less than arbitrary, it's timing for tone. I think this is great fuel if you believe Dale Cooper's the dreamer. I think having mm-hmm. that image superimposed, we live inside a dream, very Wizard of Oz type mentality here. If you believe Dale Cooper is the dreamer, I think that this is a really easy thing to attach to that theory. Meanwhile, the counter that I put up to that theory, and there will be more counters to come, is the fact that recognizing that you live inside of the dream and that absent face of it may be something that is more in a doom-like way, recognizing the realm around him being his truth, but as a greater falsehood. Mm-hmm that it is something that he has to live with and understand seeing all these characters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dale Cooper and Diane kiss. She says she remembers everything. What do you think everything entails? I think she remembers everything is meaning that she can recall all the events, not only for herself as Diane, but even potentially her Tulpa, Diane. I think that she recalls everything that needs to be known up to this point. I think that she's all caught up. She potentially also remembers Nido. I think that from the presence of being in this omnipotent zone and the potential insight that that can give forward, I think having a character that says that she's all caught up is notable, especially since 
Diane is literally the record keeper, is the one that is the one receiving all of Dale Cooper's notes. Aren't you glad that someone knows what's going on in Twin Peaks? <laughs> I, I'm fairly confident. I'm fairly confident. I, uh, your, your downfall. Um, <laughs> I, I look at this and I guess the two things that strike me is, one, I remember everything has the positive potential connotation that she remembers the plans that Dale Cooper had confided with her. Because yeah, as part 17 continues... And especially in part 18, she seems to be on the same page with Dale Cooper about what they're doing. She Mm -hmm. seems to not have a lot of questions. She seems to know where they're going and why they're doing it. So I'm going to assume that off screen at some unknown point, Dale Cooper had communicated to Diane some semblance of a plan that gets acted out in 17 and 18, especially 18 when it comes to Diane. That's also, I think, what's being said with I Remember Everything. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't know what that is, but she does. Yes. I also think there's a dark connotation of she remembers what Mr. C did. I think that that's also true, especially with the later scene in part yeah, 18. Because I the, think everything she does would have to include everything. So is she says it in an almost positive tone, but there is a darker element that that's being remembered as well. Um, an incredibly traumatic, horrible incident that no doubt would change the way that she would look at Dale Cooper in immense ways. Because yes. there is this element that we have to, again, confront when it comes to the doppelganger and Mr. C. That although doppelganger Mr. C changed over time and maybe maybe became his own person, you could argue, at the beginning, he started out as being the type from the Red Room. And one of the readings you can put forward, I think it's the strongest reading, and it is personally my reading, is looking at the doppelganger as the shadow self. Yes. And therefore being the darker elements of one's own psyche. What I mean by that is that whatever doppelganger was at the beginning when he first left the red room is part of Dale Cooper gone loose. That would indicate to me that the early form of Mr. C, the early form of the doppelganger, even if maybe not later, but the early form was doing things that Dale Cooper in some way was capable of and in some way wanted. That means that Diane would have to confront that if she was attacked by Dale Cooper early into this situation, this might not be a different person wearing his face. Mm-hmm. This might be something that Dale Cooper, her Dale Cooper, was capable of and secretly in a very dark part of his consciousness would have wanted. This isn't just some random thing she can separate. Oh, he just looks like you. No, he might have been a part of him. Yes. How do you walk away from that? How do you step away from it? I don't think the return is equipped to handle that. I think the return is much more interested in telling you really dumb time travel stories <laughs> and really dumb supernatural stuff that confront real human emotions. And I'm going to get mad and heated about that as we talk. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm looking at it in a sense of not only this very horrifying, complicated end, which leads into a beautiful scene in the most horrifying way in part 18, but I also look at it in the greater whole of Mr. C that affected Diane was noted for being smiling. And I don't think that Mr. C's cracked a smile at any point throughout the return. I think what the return does very well in the sense of mythology is showing that everything is bound to evolve and change with the duration of time. Except for Ed and Norma. Ed and Norma? They're trapped in stasis. I think they They were, were. they were broken out of it. Thanks to Nadine. It just took a very long, long time. We were able to break that shell, but It's where, like, without much context of the beyond, but more so for the reasoning, we see Philip Gerard more present in the Red Room. Mm 
mm-hmm. as someone who seems to be more of an acting agent. We see the evolution of the arm, which is acting inside there. We see the fireman no longer taking the place of the giant, but that could be a potential shift inside of that zone, however the time may go. We see Mr. C changing as well as, I would say, by some extension, Bob, evolving into a new nature. Evolution and those shifts and changes are inevitable mm-hmm. nonetheless. And I do think that it comes across well enough through the show that even with all this evolution that has changed, there is still that uneasiness and that horror that Diane confronts and realizes that it is something unbearable and reasonably so. I think we get pretty good evidence that Philip Gerard was a woodsman previously. I think it's enough for my head canon at least yeah. that when he is walking, he does the fire walk with me chant and then he leads Dale Cooper into the convenience store. He does the exact same kind of thing that the woodsman did with Mr. C yes. just from the opposite side. Yes. He does it from, uh, he still leads them across there into the same yes. goal, but, but flipped. I, it, it's flipped it, which one's on the left, which one's on the right. Yes. It's something that you could argue that maybe the Dutchman is just more than the convenience store itself. That is just, again, that form of, transport or it's just that this man knows the past though so he's like here i'll help yeah, you through I the special secret en- shortcut there's enough evidence based on the original show just saying he was his familiar yes the closest thing we see to bob's familiar would be the woodsman yes and, and i think it's like enough that if it's on if it's not outright confirmed that like it's pretty solid mm-hmm. i will say just as a quick aside the amount of times i see like even the twin peaks wiki bounce between saying philip gerard versus mike I think the credits have always said Philip Gerard. I'm not even sure if Mike has ever been said in the return. I don't think so. I continue to say Philip Gerard, but I want to note that when I was doing like summaries and stuff, I kept seeing Mike pop up. So I'm a little uncertain. I think that if I might, if you Mike, this is the evolution of Philip Gerard and Mike. It's where both sides kind of come into mold into the one being that now resides inside of the red room where the recognition of this new form and reality of them is why this is Philip Gerard now who is abandoned his past with Mike and is now acting as an agent, probably in some form of tandem with the fireman to continue forward as the arm is no longer the arm. It's now the evolution of the arm, the name and the context of it, I think are important for the background summary of what has changed. Mm. I feel like, yeah, the human side is gone. I feel like the human side was like erased uh, I don't feel it as a union. I feel it as a, a further separation. Mm. There's this recurring thing with a lot of the characters who are in the mob zone or red room, however you want to view these spaces, mm-hmm. that they feel less human as time goes on. That mm-hmm. the evolution of the arm, the evolution is to become less human. That Philip Gerard had to abandon basically his human entity side mm-hmm. uh, to be what he is now. And even down to what Philip Jeffries and Major Briggs have become. They do not. They do not feel like they have their humanity as well. And instead, it's kind of a sterile, cold, emotionless kind of state that seems like a bad ending. This seems like you do not want to ascend. You do not want to be involved in this. <laughs> I, I would not want to be taken to those zones and become what they are becoming. At this point, it's as if the zones themselves are an active participating job or sense of service that these people are anchored to. More than it is to freedom, because I think the human element at the end of the day are flaws and autonomy, something that if the flaws are emphasized, it's going to be a moving momentous force similar to the horrors that can be brought on by Bob. I'm just also then confused, though, where Dale Cooper has been here for 25 years. Has he similarly evolved? in the red room space. He doesn't, he hasn't changed his physical form. Not phys- when he, when he appears 
you know, I am the FBI. It seems like Dale Cooper. I think I think that with the physical form, I think that he has evolved, but not in a physical way. Very similar to Philip Jeffries. What? Not, not Philip Jeffries. Philip Gerard. So many Phillips. I think he's evolved in the same sense of Philip Gerard. Maybe not for the most positive ends, but at the end of the day for the role he is to take on, I do think that a lot of the things that Mr. C kind of drew from him was also the processing center Mm. of it being shunted away from Cooper. And I think that the complex that I see more from Cooper inside of The Return Mm -hmm. comes in that Lancelot property where he has to become that hero that has to become the person that overcomes things and is trying to do things for a betterment he believes in, most notably because of what happens with what he's willing to do with Laura Palmer. When we read The Secret History of Twin Peaks, a lot of work was done by Mark Frost to correlate and strongly suggest the idea that the Lodge entities have a correlation or connection to UFOs and aliens. Yes. Do you think that paid off in the return? Because I have zero idea what to do with that (laughs) because it doesn't feel like the same thing at all. Um, it doesn't feel like it connects to any of the gray men, Lumerian kind of stuff. The best you can get is that there are portals sometimes. I think I put in the same connection that the red room feels different and you see different things depending on which property you are going with, whether it is Twin Peaks, Firewalk Me, or The Return. In the respects that these gray men, these beings are more so reflexive by the people that are viewing them or the emotional state they are being viewed in. I think the ideas towards UFOs are being recontextualized, not from like the ideas that they necessarily come from spaces in the physical cosmos, but kind of like blend into mm. that spiritual you know, and ideal actually, sense. I, I take back what I said, because actually I think in some ways it does work. There's obviously the connection many people have made between the alien presences and what we see with the experiment, yeah. this cold, dispassionate, potentially violent force, not too different from maybe what was witnessed below with Richard Nixon showing the potential alien mm-hmm. to uh, our original Dougie. Mm. But there's also the element of viewing alien abductions. I would say that Andy got abducted. I think Andy got abducted. I think the idea of looking up to the sky, something unidentified flying yeah. in the air, and I suppose a hole can be an object. You get yeah. shunted into that hole, and then during that time, you Freddy. are absent from everyone. Yeah, I got Freddy. abducted. So I can see it. I just, again, I'm not sure it 100% feels the same, but I maybe I'm a bit too quick to, to completely rule against it. I would just say that it feels like the return might give maybe more to secret history, but I'm not sure the secret history gives more to the return. Like, I mm-hmm. don't know how helpful, like if, for example, if we had skipped the secret history of twin peaks yeah. and you just watch the return, I wouldn't have how put, much would change? Not much. Genuinely like it just doesn't much. have much connection. Other than being like, Hey Tammy, what's up? But I do uh. think if you go back to the secret <laughs> history now, yes. there would be some things that you would think about. Yeah. So I feel like, again, it's not even, that no. situation and make of that what you will. Uh, speaking of make of that what you will, my hands go up in the air and I'm waving them like I do care because I'm so confused. But then at some point I maybe stop caring at the same time. Dale Cooper goes up the stairs to the convenience store. Then there's a, some eerie electrical sounds and an effect. And the jumping man is seen coming down the stairs. Yes. What is the jumping man? The jumping man is probably something foreboding being anticipated inside of it. Noting that it like is an ever living presence it's going the opposite direction as him, so is it? what does that mean? It means that right now there's things in play and movements happening that are 
notable and also outside of the goals of what Dale Cooper is. If we are especially to continue the reading, which I am, that Sarah Palmer is associated with the Jumping Man. Okay, so Sarah Palmer, Jumping Man, and Judy, both similar. Yes, both similar in a okay. vein of, like, what is happening around And I the think background. that there is very strong backing of it based on all the evidence I laid out earlier, and then also, obviously, the potential of it being Grace Zabriskie's face on the Jumping Man. Mm-hmm. However, all of these things are still walking on stilts, because all you have to do is just kick down the stilts and say, oh, yeah, that wasn't Grace Zabriskie's face. <laughs> and immediately that Jumping Man connection goes pretty far away because that's the main proof. That's the main thing. It's the main it. thing. It's the main proof. So in the meantime, yeah. whether or not it is directly inside of it, I'm taking it as something's going moving yeah. against Dale Cooper in the background, almost in yeah. his feet seems I, a panic. I just hate how flimsy this is. <laughs> I hate how we have to read into these really like fleeting blink and you miss it moments. Like if I hadn't gone through and like told you and showed you and yeah. paused, would you have ever thought, oh, the jumping man right there had no, no, and I a don't lot think of people so. don't think that because it happens so fast. And it's like, would David Lynch put something important like that in that kind of way? I personally hope not because I think it's not very good storytelling. And meanwhile, I think that's very fun at the very least as an interactive puzzle because not, without these conversations or these observations, I wouldn't be able to keep kind of growing in my mind of like, okay, does this fit here well? Well, does it? Am I reaching too far? Am I stretching to make sure that this ropes through? Right now, so far, I don't think so. I'm feeling all the more comfortable with not only my position, but also the fun and the chase of the puzzle. Mm. So, Dale Cooper talks to <laughs> Philip Jeffries, who I think at this point we could say is not the tea kettle or whatever that is. He's inside of it. Because he says, like, it's slippery in here. That's a terrible impersonation. But he says it's slippery in there. So he's inside there. He's just kind of in there, which reminds me of the man in Eraserhead with the levers. Like, he's just <laughs> in this cramped space. I don't know what his body looks like anymore, but... Uh, elsewise, it is pretty, like, damp outside. Okay, so you think he still might be the tea kettle? It still might be the tea, tea okay. kettle. What do you prefer to think? I think I prefer tea kettle, mostly because having something so drastic of a shift change and the sound style of it, recognizing how far this place can go. I like testing the boundaries and limits of the imagination on whether or not it would work through. I even kind of like the interpretations of whether or not hearing you like it or not, because at that point, it is a litmus test I suppose on how acidic or base this cleaning water is to make sure that everything is nice and tidy this is not based by my opinions <laughs> that, that is a that is a slang term in like five years people are gonna be like what's based <laughs> I feel like it's gonna age but it hasn't aged out yet so not I'm yet. gonna still use it we're young we're young we're not young we're getting old <laughs> anyway so he talks about where to find Judy and he seems kind of confused like he was before to be honest but out of the steam he creates the owl cave symbol which then turns into two diamonds. They like separate and then it becomes an eight. And there's around the eight, this like this little, little, like not really around. It's like on the eight track, the eight track <gasps> music, mm-hmm. the eight track. There's a little orb that mm-hmm. kind of like moves up and down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so some, some ideas we can maybe talk about with that. The idea of the eight, obviously there's numbers. I don't know the numerology side. Maybe David Lynch means something by the number eight specifically. I think of more that the number eight looks like an infinity symbol. Yeah. Um, so there's a time loop. There's an infinite element here. Uh, you could also assume it two rings. The main ring is the Jade ring. We also have Cooper's ring, but with this ring, Ivy wed, it's the idea of marriage. It's the side of like these two things that are connected. You could maybe do like an Ouroboros type of idea here. Um, I also think two ring, 
we have to get back to Tiger and Bunny sometime. <laughs> two rings could also be the idea of like two timelines intersecting. The original and then the new one, the one where Laura dies and the one where Laura lives. Mm-hmm. It could be the official version and the unofficial version because apparently, say hello to Gordon if you see him, he'll remember the unofficial version, which that to me indicates the idea that Gordon is going to remember the version where Laura Palmer died. He's going to be like one of the few people or the only people to remember that version after Laura is taken out of that timeline. That'd be my guess. But I do want to note it says, say hello to Gordon if you see him, not when you see him, which is a really foreboding wording. Like you may never see him again. And also we don't see him see Gordon again. We don't see Gordon again. Trust the Gordon fisherman. And if Gordon is a sort of like speaking point to David Lynch, like even like coming up to David Lynch and talked about it, it's unofficial because even then, like what is supposed to be trusted at this point? Yeah. Also, you could take the rings to be not only like two timelines, but it could be two dreams yeah. that are intersecting and looping that are irrevocably connected to each other. You cannot separate them. It also maybe is the visual of like a cell dividing, or maybe it's an atom bomb thing. It's the splitting of the atom. All of these things and more can be yours for the price of only $24.99. Send it to Dr. Amp right now. <laughs> Send your money right now. Oh, also Palmer Household 708. Yeah. Eight. The number eight. Now, of all it's these different current. ones, do you have a certain leaning toward the, any of these interpretations or a different one? At this point, it's one of those cases where the constant association and the many implications, you've went on to plenty to place onto the table. I think that if you ever walked up to David Lynch, you could say that any of those ones would work out. Because okay. at the end of the day, I do think that there are reoccurring ideas they don't that contradict. can come to it. Yeah, they there, don't There's contradict. no mutual exclusivity. It could mean all of them. It's also one of those cases where you just pick whichever ones you want. Yeah. In this case, it's very notable for not only its curvature, but also the little ball moving from one side to another, almost like you are turning the crank on a trolley to mm. change the tracks. Maybe something new has opened up. Maybe something has shifted enough that thanks to Philip Jeffries. He swiped uh, left. He's he swiped left. He's like, yeah, no, you can go now uh, in that respect. His last words to Dale Cooper are, Cooper, remember. What do you think Dale Cooper's supposed to remember? I think it's one of those like little like pushes, little bits of edges that says that it's now up to Cooper's own mind to sort of mm. like guide him. I think he's supposed to like take in what he once was because there okay. have been like a dynamic So remember who you are. Remember who you are in that respect because we are about to... In the following scene, when he's about to travel forward, do something very similar to the, the Tibetan stone method, in which mm. he's going on towards emotions, feelings, and recognitions of his environment before trying to make an action. That may seem like nonsense at first, but more so Cooper is guided by that spiritual sense. Sure. So, Dale Cooper goes back in time. Time travel is now in Twin Peaks officially. And this seems pretty on the face of it, that Dale Cooper went back to the time of fire walk with me, the night that Laura would have been killed. And he tried to save Laura Palmer by taking her away from the situation. His wording here is that he was going to take her home. A very loaded terminology as he took her presumably closer to the portal that would have been in the woods, presumably to that same Jackrabbit's palace location. If we're going to go by what seems likely, but not confirmed. A few things to note over here. Uh, One, I personally, amid a lot of things I don't like, 
I do love the way that her scream has been recontextualized, that in Firewalk With Me, there's that part where she looks like past James and starts screaming. And in the original Firewalk With Me, that did not get context. That was just a scream. I like that now it's the idea that Dale Cooper is in the woods and she saw Dale Cooper. Um, I like it because you can simply say, no, she didn't. And you, sure, we don't know. She's on drugs right now. <laughs> she just looked in a direction and screamed, but it happened to be in the direction that Dale Cooper was in. And yes. if you want to interpret Dale Cooper as a negative evil force, I don't know, shady time traveling man in the woods that she appeared in a nightmare dream one time might be a great fuel for that fire. <laughs> Again, things were a lot simpler before you came here, Mr. Dale Cooper. Mm. So, you know, there's something to that. I like that recontextualization. I think it hits different when you rewatch Fire Walk with me. I also want to note the use of the term home. So in the book, Laura's Ghost, there is some writing happening there. I can't remember which author specifically said it, but I think a few iterated the similar idea that when you're dealing with a case of abuse, such as Laura Palmer, um, taking someone home is not a good thing. Um, that is not a safe place. That is not a healthy place. Taking Laura home is not good. Not a good thing. And there's also this argument that Laura Palmer had agency in Fire Walk With Me that Dale Cooper is now taking away. So you could interpret Dale Cooper's intentions as being, I'm going to go save Laura Palmer, but um, that doesn't seem to be necessarily a good choice. And I think there's some evidence to support that it's not a good choice based on everything that happens afterward. It's something that as an argument in favor of Dale Cooper, I do agree. It's horrible for him to bring like Laura back in that context, in that area. Maybe inside of the more suburban area, there would be less excuse for Bob Leland to drag her away. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could have been something that at the very least she would be alive or at the very least not married to the Red Room by following out with these individuals that will eventually lead to her death because this is the night of her like. And it death. also goes back to the fact that Dale Cooper in the dream, although it was his younger version, what is time anyway, he does tell Laura Palmer, don't take the ring. Yes. Laura takes the ring. And that's what gets into that speculation of what does that mean? She actively went against what Dale Cooper said. The interpretation I think you and I have been going with, or at least I know I have been going with, is that the ring marries you to the lodge in one extent, but it also is a situation where it seals your fate. And so by wearing the ring, Laura chose to die instead of becoming the vessel of Bob. That mm -hmm. is my interpretation. So when Dale Cooper said, don't wear the ring, don't take the ring, he was trying to save Laura from dying. Mm -hmm. She chose to wear the ring anyway, and died. Don't die. So that's don't my question die. just to double check. Are we on the same page that Dale Cooper telling her don't wear the ring, don't take the ring, was also him trying to save her from dying in the past and fire walk with me? Yes, and that's very important. Put a mega pin in that. You're the one putting pins in now. I'm putting pins in. I Enjoy have something it. I'm very excited to talk about. We're getting very, all the closer. Very exciting, very exciting. <laughs> As I'm approaching like two hours of recorded audio. It's going to be a beefy episode. It, oh, the ending of The Return being a who beefy episode? Who could have foreseen this? Who could have foreseen? We'll have an intermission for you, folks. Don't worry. <laughs> 